This podcast is a member of the Voices of Wrestling podcasting network. Visit VoicesOfWrestling.com to hear the rest of our great podcasts, as well as show reviews, columns, opinions, and updates across the world of wrestling. To the highway, in a brand new day, gotta let it go. to open the voice gate rewind and rewatch the wrap-up show for our dragon gate usa series we are members of the voices of wrestling podcast network you can find us on the voices of wrestling feed or on the open the voice gate feed on all podcast platforms and applications you can follow us on twitter at open voice gate if you'd like to donate to the show click the link in the show notes it'll take you to our redcircle.com landing site you click the uh, red rectangle that says sponsor this podcast and you can do a one-time reoccurring donation as always no obligation whatsoever but we would like to thank all of our previous donors i'm one of your hosts it's your old pal Iron Mike Spears. join us always by our other host case low in case 50 episodes approximately a year and we've come to the end at least at this point of our dgusa project it is wrap-up show time and we have a whole lot of fun stuff planned for this don't we it feels good. It feels really good to think that, again, we've literally been working on this project for a year now. The first episode of the Rewind and Rewatch that we did was released on March 31st of 2020, and we would have recorded that a week, if not two weeks, before that was released. So this has been an entire year in the making. We've watched every bit of Dragon Gate USA. We can get our hands on some of it. We've enjoyed some of it. We have not, to say the least, and it all kind of uh, leads to this, of a wrap-up show where we're going to be talking about the best matches in the company's history, the best shows, some of the best and worst that this promotion had to offer over their five-year lifespan. Yeah, so this is going to be, if you're someone who just like dips their toes in or has this as a backlog, or you're someone who does not want to have to go through all 50 shows, this is going to be like a two-hour morsel of what is originally like 80 hours where we're going to talk about like what happened afterwards with DGUSA, what happened with WWN, what happened with the titles. Then we're going to talk about our reviews. We're going to give it our best. It's good. And then we'll move on to some reflection. We've had some questions that without leading in a way, we ended up with some questions that were topics we wanted to talk about on today's show. Like this is in a lot of ways, this is kind of like our capsulation, or like we've put this into a capsule of what Dragon Gate USA is with this upcoming show. I think it's fair to say. Yeah, I'm, I'm thrilled to be a part of this. It's really cool to be able to put a bow on this project. And after, I mean, like I, you know, I've talked about it a few different times on this show now about just even though the shows are what, you know, two and a half, three hours every week, and it doesn't eat up a ton of time. 
this entire week I had already completed my notes for this episode, and so I was just going like, wait, I've I've got to do something else, don't I? Like, don't I have to watch Fearless 2012? <laughs> no, I don't. I could I could watch more Grand Hamada matches instead. So it's uh, it'll be very weird to finally be done with this after this week. Yeah, and and that's something that we've talked about a little bit on in oblique terms. Like, this has been a very fulfilling project. But it's weirdly a time sink that I'm ready to kind of put some distance between because both of us independently watch the shows. We do the research we can. I did a lot of the earlier research cases, picked up my slack towards the end, and then recording and then editing. I mean, this this has turned into basically a five to eight hour a week enterprise that, you know, we have other things we've talked about wanting to do afterwards that we might take like a week or two break before we move on to that. But, you know, this is kind of like our... Uh, I guess this the, this episode is our product for like that is is the product of like our 400 combined hours focusing on DGUSA, which does kind of feel a little sad when you quantify it like that. Yeah, but the the, the good thing is for as much research as we've done for as hard as some of these shows have been to watch, I had fun the entire time because shows were better for longer than I anticipated them to be. Even the bad stuff towards the end. I was able to find some sort of value in it. So at no point over the past year have I really thought like, ugh, I wish we wouldn't have done this. It was a really fun project all the way through, at least on my end. Yeah, and in a lot of ways, I kind of came into this and I didn't really spring this on you until we got a little bit deeper in the project. I came in- into this project with the uh, uh, hypothesis that Dragon Gate USA indirectly or directly was responsible for everything up to 2019 in some ways is one of the first like uh dominoes to fall that led to all elite wrestling and as we started doing this over the last uh, 50 or so weeks it's kind of in a lot of ways have kind of become true it kind of proved my hypothesis but in a lot of ways have made a more interesting presumption out of this like how did you feel about like with the first time i kind of pitched that idea to you about basically everything gets traced back to basically 2008 and over the last year like what what was your kind of response to your findings of this well i agree and we talked about it in depth if you want to go back to the first wrestlemania weekend we covered in phoenix that has opened the ultimate gate 2010 and mercury rising 2010 that's the foundations of the independent wrestling scene for the next decade until COVID hits and Evolve stops running. That is exactly 2010 WrestleMania weekend is the demarcation point of, okay, this is what the independent scene is now. And it never changed. There's never been any sort of uh, partnership or easing among, uh, among enemy lines between Gabe and ROH, whether they're carry owned and operated or Sinclair owned and operated. that is the foundation for everything that we saw. And although if you played, you know, the last 10 years back with uh, with wrestlers having the ability to work for both Evolve and Ring of Honor, I'm sure we still get to All Elite Wrestling, but we're not living in that timeline. And, and so we don't know. But what we do know is that we had this world where the independent ecosystem was formed at the very start of Dragon Gate USA. And it carried us through a decade of independent wrestling at its apex. And now we're certainly seeing it at a low point in the scene because of places like All Elite Wrestling and to an extent MLW and Ring of Honor having somewhat lucrative contracts. And for the talent, it's great for fans of independent wrestling. You know, I've certainly been more satisfied with the product at other times in my life, but still, it all goes back to Dragon Gate USA. Right, yeah. And it's something that it's very fascinating. and It's something that I wonder 
like we started this project basically in 2020 looking back 12 years now we're looking back seven years and i'm wondering like how are we going to think about this uh promotion that pretty much unless something really weird happens is not going to be revisited it's not going to probably be featured prominently on wwe network a or peacock in the future so it'll be interesting to see it the farther we get away from dgusa what the ramifications of it were yeah completely i mean that's why it was important for me to do this project was that we had had enough distance we had seen the, the ramifications of Gate usa play into the wrestling world at this point and no one's going to cover this it's why when i was really down on Gate in japan in 2017 and 2018 i force myself to keep on covering it because if I don't do it you know you might do it but even then like it just the the records need to be kept the archive needs to be preserved and even if we're doing this seven years after the fact at least in the case of the final Dragon USA show there's now at least some long form record of this promotion where we we kept tabs on the news wires throughout the project and we kept tabs on what else was going on in, in wrestling, not just independent wrestling, but wrestling throughout the project. And I think that's really important. And, you know, I hope that whatever dorks come along 20 years later that follow in our footsteps, uh, maybe not 20 years, because by then, who, who knows what the world would be. But in five years, when the next dorks come along and they want to do some research, I hope that uh, this podcast aids them in that effort somehow yeah especially considering how a lot with resources and stuff going by the wayside it's important to have some sort of verbal record at the very least i mean the world tradition case has existed for thousands of years so we just did our own very insignificant contribution of it for over the last year but you you mentioned the idea of distance and the idea of how the, the the promotion closed up in 2014 after the uh, after Mercury Rising 2014 on April 5th 2014 but that was not it at least for the Dragon Gate lineage and there still were events that happened in particular with the uh, Dragon Gate USA titles being the Open the Freedom Gate Championship and Open the United Gate Championship in case I know that you wanted to take us through how these titles traveled until they ultimately were retired. That is correct so we will start with the Open the Freedom Gate title which Dragon Gate USA ended with Ricochet as the champion, he was the Open the Freedom Gate champion and Open the Dream Gate champion. He would lose that Dream Gate belt to Yamato on May 5th of 2014 at Dead Ray Live in a match where Yamato literally used a wrench on Ricochet's leg. A great match. I would recommend tracking that down. As for the Open the Freedom Gate title, after the final Gate USA show, Ricochet would go on to defend the title at Evolve 32 against Matt Seidel at Evolve 35 against UHA Nation, at an A1 show in Canada, Final Act 5 on November 2nd, 2014 against Josh Alexander, before defending the belt in China twice, once on the first China show, November 10th, 2014 against Chuck Taylor, and then again on the third China show, November 14th, 2014 against AR Fox, before losing the belt back to Johnny Gargano, on the fourth China show, the fourth and final China show, that is November 16th, 2014. Mike, from the defenses there, Matt Seidel, Uha Nation, Josh Alexander, Chuck Taylor, AR Fox, and the Johnny Gargano rematch, do you have any memories of Ricochet's Freedom Gate run? It's something where probably the one match that I remember somewhat because I remember watching the show is probably the Uha Nation match in Brooklyn because it was something where... It, it does feel like that after the last Iron Gate USA show, 
it was very much like full steam ahead towards China in a lot of ways. So like these evolve shows in a weird way were kind of setting up that in a way. And of course, him and Uhal had the open the Dreamgate title match earlier that year. So it was something that was kind of a nice bit of reflexivity happening there. Yeah, the Seidel match is good. It's not great. And it's one of those where it's just amazing how quickly things change coming out of Dragon Gate USA because Evolve 32 is the second show in that Florida triple shot where Timothy Thatcher was introduced to Evolve. That was the style battle with Biff, Gulak, Thatcher, and James Radine. And Gabe was, that was, you know, grapple fuck is here and this is what the promotion is going to be. And then on that show, you had Seidel versus Ricochet. That again was a lot of fun, but it already immediately felt out of place. But that UHA match is certainly the best of that bunch. Evolve 35, which is a tremendous show top to bottom. And, and if you can find Evolve shows, Evolve 35 is one to look at. So Johnny Gargano wins the belt in China. He takes that belt back stateside and defends it against Shane Strickland at Evolve 36th on January 9th, 2015, and then goes to the UK, Kamikaze Pro Storm Wrestling, March 8th, 2015, and defeats Pete Dunne to retain the Freedom Gate belt. And then WrestleMania weekend uh, 2015 in Santa Clara, he defeats AR Fox at Evolve 39 to retain the belt. Then he would meet Drew Galloway at the 2015 WWN Super Show in a title versus title match. The belief at the time was that this match was going to unify the Evolve and Freedom Gate belts together and that we would just see the Evolve title going forward. Drew Galloway won the belt, but he kept the Freedom Gate title around for just a little while longer. So after winning the belt in in March, he would go on to the UK and defeat Marty Skrull at British Championship Wrestling, Doug Williams at Rev Pro at our best 2015, and then a variety of other matches, concluding with a defense over Biff Busick at Evolve 43, before finally losing the title, both titles, at Evolve 45 in Ybor City, Florida, to Timothy Thatcher. And there is no man that deserved to kill Drangate USA more than that of Timothy Thatcher, the antithesis of what DGUSA was founded upon. It, and it's something that, like, it was a real moment when Galloway won, did the, when they had the title for title match, and Galloway beat Gargano, because that was really when it felt like, okay, Johnny's run as, like, the big evolve, uh, the big WWN guy is over. Now it, it very much became a Galloway-focused company in a lot of ways. And then, yeah, Timothy Thatcher carrying around this belt is just a very wild thing. He quickly retired it within a month. So it was something where I don't think he actually had a technical open the dream gate, open the freedom gate title defense. I think that the last match for this title and it was on Evolve 45 and he just basically eventually they did a press release saying that he has retired the belts. Yes, that is correct. There are no official freedom gate defenses for Timothy Thatcher. So that is the open the freedom gate lineage right there, beginning with BB Hulk going to Yamato, Johnny Gargano, Ricochet, and then back to Gargano before ending with Galloway, and then eventually Timothy Thatcher. Mike, is there anything you want to say about the Open the Freedom Gate title before we move on? It's something that, at least for me, the conclu- the real conclusion of this title was not the uh, Mercury Rising 2014, not Mercury Rising, open the, open the Ultimate Gate 2014. It probably was Gargano re it in China, and that kind of was it. Then it 
it, at a certain point it did really become become gargano's personal title belt almost like the icwa the icw icwa texarkana tv <laughs> title was for larry sweeney in a way but yeah it, it became very clearly like a vestige of a dead promotion as soon as it as soon as gargano was making that second run of defenses and then especially after galloway winning the title for title match it's something that, at least through Dragon Gate USA, and I, and I can't speak to what would come afterwards just because I have seen most of those matches. I at least have seen all the ones that took place in Evolve and on the WWN property shows. But while in Dragon Gate USA, I feel like the belt was important the entire time, and that's something that Gabe has always done a tremendous job of. I don't feel like the Ring of Honor world title during his run in Ring of Honor was ever devalued at any point. And I can say this the same thing about the Freedom Gate belt, that from Hulk through Ricochet, it felt like that belt really mattered. And, and I like that about the promotion. The fact that there were so few Freedom Gate champions is something that, you know, looking back, I, I, I like that. For as much as I liked, say, a, a John Davis, it's probably for the best that we didn't get a three-month John Davis Freedom Gate run. I think for the most part, the belt was was booked great. The, the one thing you could say is, well... Should Akira Tozawa have had the title? And I would certainly listen to that argument. But as I said a few weeks ago when we talked about Ultimate Gate 2014, the moment of Ricochet beating Gargano was just so beautiful to me. I had such immense satisfaction from that moment that although I would have loved to have seen a Tozawa title run, I really don't have any complaints about the booking of that title for five straight years. I mean, I, I will argue the other side. When they reached a certain point and when Dragon Gate USA was crawling for relevance, just like thing, tooth and nail, and was at one point the number four promotion in the United States, and then it was in the milieu of AAW uh, beyond uh, PWG, like in 2013, 2012, 2013, and then 2014, it ceased to exist. I think that having Tazawa with the belt at least one point could have brought more eyes to the product and could have sold more tickets, especially at a time when they were getting less and less fly-ins. And he's the one guy who always jumped to work for the United, in the United States even before he got hired by WWE. Like It just is something that I feel like that it was a failed business decision there. However, the satisf- how satisfying the Ricochet one win was against Gargano, I, it's something where you would have to completely chart out a remaining existence of the promotion if it was Tozawa getting the belt at one point. As for the Open the United Gate belts, the Bravado brothers who left Drangit USA as the champions, they would go on to defend the titles at Evolve 30 against Fire Ant and Green Ant. They would defend the belts against Caleb Conley and Rich Swan at the FIP Florida Rumble in 2014, and then they would make one more defense at Evolve 34, this time against Fire Ant and Silver Ant before losing the belts in a three-way tag that had A.R. Fox and Rich Swan in it, but the champions coming out of that match were Anthony Nice and Caleb Conley. The important thing to note here is that although Nice and Conley won the belts in that three-way tag, the next few defenses would be made by Caleb Conley and Trent Beretta, as on the China shows, the Premier Athlete brand defeated Fire Ant and Silver Ant on night one, the Bravados on night two, and then both the Bravados and Fire Ant and Silver Ant on night four. As we head into 2015, Conley and Nice would lose the belts to Johnny Gargano and Rich Swan at Evolve 42, and then Gargano and Swan would defeat Drew Gulak and Tracy Williams at Evolve 43 on May 30th, 2015. 
after that, the belts would go dormant until the beginning of 2016 when a tournament was uh, was made to crown the first ever Evolve Tag Team Champions, and that tournament was won by Johnny Gargano and Drew Galloway. It, it's something that, like, the China shows, Nice wasn't on those shows. So yes. they basically made it into a... They basically gave it a Freebirds role because he was not there. And it, it's something that, like, it was, like, a big deal about... Uh, Gargano and Swan reuniting as Ronan to winning those titles, and then Swan eventually turned heel, and then it was kind of like, oh yeah, no, these titles are done now. We'll have new Evolve champions now. The United Gate belts, in a way, represent the immediate and unapologetic downfall of Dragon Gate USA. First champions are Masato Yoshino and Pac. They would lose the belts to Shima and Ricochet, who would then vacate the belts because Shima was injured. Masato Yoshino and Ricochet would become the champions, and then they would vacate the belts because Masato Yoshino didn't want to come over to America anymore. And then from there, it became AR Fox and Shima. They would lose to the Young Bucks. The Bucks would lose to the Bravados. And then, like I said, the Premier Athlete brand. And then Ronan would end with the United Gate tag team titles. I I think there's an argument. To, well, I, I, I don't know if I'd go that far. I will say this. The United Gate belts, when they were on, when they were cared for and treated with respect— produced some of the best overall matches in the history of Dragon USA, but the booking of them with all of the vacancies, with, you know, guys, again, you know, Masato Yoshino just literally not wanting to come to America anymore, it represented a huge problem within this promotion. Yeah, and it was something that really until Shima and AR Fox won the belts that, like, it they had this tournament and... It was built up in a right way, and then you had the very short Spike Mohicans run that eventually was like, hey, we're going to do our own thing. Blood Warriors is over. And then, as you said, the whole Yoshino not wanting to wrestle in America anymore. There was no stability for this title, basically, until mid-2012. And then at that point, basically, it was Yoshima and AR Fox, who had a who, I mean, probably had the, the best combined reign out of any of the champions, the Young Bucks, and then it quickly, when the Young Bucks were clearly done with Gabe and couldn't work for Dragon Gate USA, then you had the Bravados, and then at that point, the titles were already dead, I would say. And everything post the Young Bucks reign, even going post DGUSA, it's something that's like, well, the, you're basically hauling around corpses of titles at this point, in my opinion. Mike... Are you ready to move on from the title lineage into some events that happened after Dragon Gate USA died, just to illustrate how long this promotion has been inactive? Yeah, let's do it. All right, so I've got a list of nine things that happened in 2014 after the dissolution of Dragon Gate USA. I'll read all of those, and then we can react to it. And then from there, I've got another list of uh, about, I think, nine other things that are going to illustrate uh, the history of the Dragon system in America following DGUSA, some Dragon Gate Japan notes, some Gabe notes, kind of everything in the universe of what we talked about that happened after Dragon Gate USA died. But I want to talk about some of the things that people may not remember also happened in 2014. And this list begins two days after the death of Dragon Gate USA, April 7th, 2014, Jeff Jarrett announces the launch of Global Force Wrestling. Next, that, that's how long... Let's stop right there for a second. That's how long Dragon USA is dead, has been dead. They didn't live to see the launch date of Global Force Wrestling. Can you believe that? I mean, it is such a shame. I feel like that Shima and Jeff Jarrett would have a lot to talk about, <laughs> given the opportunity. 
Uh, some other things on this list. May 10th and May 17th of 2014, Ring of Honor and New Japan run their first collaboration shows, the first being on May 10th. That was Global Wars, headlined by Adam Cole versus Kevin Steen. That was a show that had all Ring of Honor versus Ring of Honor matches and all New Japan versus New Japan matches. A week later in the Hammerstein Ballroom, this would be the War of the World show with the tremendous Jay Lethal versus Kushida match, Shinsuke Nakamura versus Kevin Steen, Red Dragon versus the Young Bucks, which is maybe the best match those two teams ever had, and the main event of AJ Styles defeating Kazuchika Okada and Michael Elgin. From there, we move to the end of May. Chikara returns with You Only Live Twice, that was the show headlined by Icarus defeating Eddie Kingston for the Chikara Grand Title. Two months later, we move into the summer, July 25th, 2014, Dragon Gate UKX, their 10th show. The opening match being Akira Tozawa versus Will Ospreay. Also on this show, Shima and Susumu Yokosuka versus Masato Yoshino and Naruki Doi in a main event of Akira Tozawa and Ricochet versus Mark Haskins and Marty Skrull. And then the next night, Yamato versus Yokosuka 2. This would be the final Dragon Gate UK show. It had Martin Kirby in the opener. Uh, the more things change, the more they stay the, sh- the same. An opening match of the Lion Kid defeating Rich Swan, Uha Nation, and Will Ospreay in a four-way match. And then your final two matches, your main events on these shows, Yamato defeating Susumu Yokosuka and Akira Tozawa defeating Ricochet in a battle of Monster Express teammates. We move back to the U.S. Indies at the end of August. PWG brings back the three-night Battle of Los Angeles tournament. I think there's probably fans at this point that have just come to expect PWG Bola being a three-night extravaganza, but for a very long time, and we talked about every Bola on this show from 2009 through 2013, they were either two-night or, in the case of 2012, a one-night event. I'm sorry, 2011 was a one-night event. PWG, they really loaded it up. This is really the beginning of the boom period of PWG, this Bola that, I I mean, literally, I think everybody on these shows was at some point a contracted Major League wrestler in America or Japan. Candice LeRae, Rich Swan, Johnny Gargano, Chuck Taylor, Kenny Omega, ACH, Matt Seidel, Chris Hero, Ricochet, Chris Saban, Zack Sabre Jr., Adam Cole, AJ Styles, Brian Myers, Kyle O'Reilly, Drew Gulak, Michael Elgin, Tommaso Ciampa, Roderick Strong, Biff Busick, TJ Perkins, Bobby Fish, Trevor Lee, and Cedric Alexander. Those were your combatants in Bola. It was won by Ricochet when he defeated Johnny Gargano and Roderick Strong in the finals. Speaking of Kenny Omega, October 3rd, 2014, he announces that he will sign with New Japan once his DDT contract expires at the end of October The cleaner would soon be born after that, and then from there, you know the story, Kenny Omega takes over the wrestling world. Also in October, October 29th, 2014, the first episode of Lucha Underground airs with a main event of Prince Puma versus Johnny Mundo. And then my final note from the end of 2014, just to illustrate how long ago this was, December 1st, 2014, the launch of New Japan World. So, a lot of interesting things to kind of touch on here. Uh, just like the uh, the second show, of, I forget the, the name, I apologize, of Ring of Honor and New, J- New Japan Global Wars was probably 
I would say, like, to the point, at least in the Sinclair era, the best show that they ever held. Like, the, and they were clearly, like, like we, we talked about, like, it takes a while for Sinclair to really get behind Ring of Honor, and it was still very much a shoestring in a lot of ways, kind of, like, tripping over itself operation. Global Wars, if there was anything that poured jet fuel onto the company, it was Global Wars. And that PWG, just, like, that BOLA tournament, like, it, it there's a reason why I vehemently argue that if there was ever like a kayfabe MVP of a given year, it should have been Ricochet in 2014 because just like the amount of awards he had in different companies, and that's not even including uh, Prince Puma, that's not even including Lucha Underground. The amount what he accomplished in 2014 is so remarkable, and it's yet I don't think it'll ever be repeated because you're talking about someone who won. They opened the Dream Gate, they opened the Freedom Gate, Bola, and Best of the Super Juniors. So three different companies there. Four, if you include Lucha Underground. It's just insane. Yeah, Ricochet's 2014 is unparalleled, and that was a year where he received a WWE tryout, and the story goes that he was told, we don't need another Pac, we're good. Which is, I mean, thank God it happened. I mean, thank God they did not want Ricochet in 2014 because it led to 2015 and 2016 Ricochet, which was so much fun. But I, I mean, it's just the the incompetence at that level. It's mind blowing to me because, you know, what did he take five years to learn how to look at a hard camera? I mean, it's just unbelievable that they didn't want Ricochet at the peak of his powers. That would be like Zion, like the ever all 30 NBA teams be like, you know what, Zion stay in college another year <laughs> we're good we yeah. we we kind of have big guys right now we're not really looking for that why don't you go back to duke for a second season and then it, with you know with how long ricochet ended up staying on the indies it would have been like if zion went to college for all four years i mean he was on the indies for so long to a point that it was uncomfortable like can this guy just sign already like uh, look i you know i love watching ricochet but it's demeaning to him to watch him at a pancakes and pile drivers show when this guy is one of the best wrestlers on earth so yeah there's uh, the the whole ricochet aspect of things that is very interesting and then like you touched on with ring of honor you know we've covered them since the start of this show as well and i think we can put a bow on it that's exactly it. The The Global War show in New York completely changes everything. By this point, I'm going to every Ring of Honor show in Chicago Ridge, and I would have gone to one in March of 2014 that was headlined by Adam Cole versus Chris Hero, and I had seen like, oh, okay, they're starting to put a little bit more production into it. The crowd's a, a little bigger. It, it seems more professional. By the time I went back to a Ring of Honor show, which would have been August of 2014, it was an entirely different feel. They had invested in the live event experience. They had invested in more talent and it was just a, a different company. And that's why I will continue to encourage people to rewatch or watch for the first time some of the 2014 and 2015 Ring of Honor stuff, because that is a really fun era of a promotion that I don't know if underrated is the right word, I, but I don't think it carries a ton of historical significance. So people aren't necessarily looking back on it as as wrestling to watch, you know, classic wrestling to watch. But that era is a very fun era of Ring of Honor. So I would recommend that. Yeah, and I remember for the longest time being completely annoyed by the production values of Ring of Honor. And then it was like a Nashville taping that they finally got a light rig. With like It's technically called a truss that goes above the ring. Yes. And like you attach that. And that completely changed everything. Because like, it was like always 
like just such like on a shoestring budget for like a company that at one time when they were having this production was outdrawing TNA like on the road and then it was always very hard and still to this day it's very hard to figure out how many people watch Ring of Honor on a weekly basis because you have to collect all the Sinclair affiliates and then you have to get all those books those rating books that's what you call the collection of ratings and then you'd have to somehow synthesize them into a overall thing and adjust it given time of the day and the fact that sometimes it's on Friday sometimes it's on Saturday sometimes it's on Sunday but it was such a frustrating thing of how little Sinclair invested into this and really it was like 2015 that they really started to like put the put the money machine going for it so it, it, it and the one last point on Ricochet if it wasn't if they would have signed him from that WWE tryout, he would not have done Lucha Underground, which held him out of basically a lot of wrestling in the United States up until mid-2016 into 2017. I will never forget, right before Lucha Underground debuted, Ricochet had to pull out of a bunch of bookings. And and obviously, Lucha Underground is what it is. And, and we now look at it as sort of a punchline. But there was that unknown period where the stuff had been filmed, but we hadn't seen any of it. And I just remember that RevPro in the UK, they had booked Okada versus Ricochet as a singles match, and Ricochet had to pull out of it because of Lucha Underground contractual obligations, and people were pissed, and rightfully so, because they were like, oh, what is what is this Lucha Underground thing? Like, why can't we get Okada versus Ricochet? That match would turn into Okada versus Austin Aries, and for as much as I like Aries as a wrestler, that is such a letdown in 2014. <laughs> and then Lucha Underground debuted, and we were like, oh, this is really cool. And then six weeks later, we were like, oh, I think I would have rather had Okada versus Ricochet uh, than, than Lucha Underground. The The final note I'll make on this timeline stuff is... It's interesting to look at the New Japan debut in America compared to the first Dragon USA show because, Mike, I don't know if you remember, but like that Hammerstein show, fans were so upset. New Japan wasn't selling any merchandise. You basically couldn't buy anything with a New Japan logo on it, which is why so many of those people were going to the show. But there was also a part of the audience that was not familiar with the New Japan talent yet. I mean, guys like Okada and Tanahashi were over but the reaction the biggest reaction to the night were the young bucks and jushin thunder liger and that was the adam cole versus liger match which to this day it's not one of his best matches but it's one of my favorite liger matches because everybody shit on that match when it was announced you know how are you doing adam cole versus liger Liger's so old who cares give us adam cole versus tanahashi and then Liger came out and got the biggest reaction of the night and then worked a very smart, very engaging match with Adam Cole. And it was like, oh, yeah, that's right. Liger's literally <laughs> one of the best guys to ever do it. Like, Ring of Honor was right in this situation. Yeah, and it's something where, like, when we talk later on in the show, reflecting about what worked for Dragon Gate USA, why it didn't work, and all of that, merch is a big thing that I remember going to the shows and it was such an issue getting merch back then. Like it's not one of those things where you could get a third party. Now it just was like one of those things that you go on eBay, you try to get someone who was going to Japan at that time. And the fact that like merch per head is one of those things that I find very fascinating in wrestling. And you know, like that was like not understanding the intrinsic, like people, if something comes and it's new and it seems like it's hip, people will want to spend money on it. And that was always the case with New Japan in America. And it took them a while before they started with pro wrestling tees. And that's its own complete different tangent that that we might say for another time. But it's something that 
you look back at it and you're like, oh, okay. Like, this was the start of something. And, I mean, you, I think that if you're looking at, like, a cultural through point, you have to look at Global Wars 2014 for that reason, just from the merchandising standpoint and that faux pas. As we move ahead to the, the latter part of the timeline, this is going to be stuff in our universe of either Dragon System in America, Dragon Gate in Japan, or Gabe Sapolsky's universe. I've got a few of these here that I'll rattle off and then I'll throw it to you. July 24th, 2015, PWG 3 Mendes 4. Akira Tozawa comes back over to the States. He loses to Ricochet in a singles match. September 11th, 2015, Kaito Ishida debuts against Takahiro Yamamura in what doubled as his debut. Those are two guys that weren't even in the system when Dragon Gate USA was a thing. At the start of 2016, January 2nd to be exact, PWG Lemmy, Akira Tozawa is back over and he once again loses this time to Zack Sabre Jr. Three months later in April of 2016, the 22nd to be exact, Ben K and Shun Skywalker make their Dragon Gate debuts. And then August 19th, 2016, Cody Rhodes debuts on the Indies and in Evolve. He wrestles Zack Sabre Jr. on his first match and then Chris Hero the next night. We'll pause there briefly. Mike, do you have anything to say about Tozawa being back over in the States, the debuts of Ashita, Yamamura, Benkei, or Skywalker, or Cody Rhodes debuting on the Indies? So this is just a little bit of me patting myself on the back here for a second, Case, if, you, if you'll indulge me for a uh, moment. I will. I'll, I'll let it slide. So those PWG shows, at that time, my brother was already out in LA and was going to to PWG shows he could get into, like this was in the the vaunted day of everyone reloading uh, PayPal and reloading PWG exactly for this. Like I remember in 2015 when I got Bola tickets, went out to Bola, just like how stressful that all was. But he got to the uh, the show with uh, Ricochet, and I and I told Drew like explicitly, if you find anything and if there's anything there, you get it for me. And I'm right now staring at my wall at like the one piece of merchandise that i actually have of ricochets it is the best friends of the galaxy t-shirt from pro wrestling tees that ricochet was was signing for that and uh, it has both a kiritazawa and ricochet signature still need to get uha nation signature on there i will throw you three news stories here in succession and then you can you can react to it october 14th 2016 Flow Slam signs a five-year contract with WWN Live. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> November 29th, 2017. 13 months later, Mike Johnson posts a story on PW Insider with the headline, Flow Slam is dead. And then a few months after that, February 28th, 2018, the lawsuit between WWN Live and Flow Slam is dismissed. We never got to the Flow Slam era in Dragon Gate USA, unfortunately. But they put all of Dragon Gate USA on Flow Slam. Eventually. <laughs> well, I mean, I remember when that when Flow Slam died, they opened up the entire archive for free. Do you remember that? <laughs> yes, what? Like there was like I a do. three week period. Because <laughs> the, the, like, right. the Flow Slam stuff was wild because they stopped carrying Evolve shows on like a Thursday when there were Evolve shows on Friday and Saturday. So I think it might have been it might have been shows in the Midwest. It might have been when they were still doing... It was. Yeah, Summit and then Livonia, Michigan. Summit, Illinois, and then Livonia, Michigan, where I don't I don't know if you could watch those shows live. I mean, at this point, I'm still pretty plugged in on Evolve. Again, I mean, I watched everything up through the complete WWE overtaking. I don't even remember if I could watch those shows live or if they just popped up somewhere later. It was such a weird 
situation and really just a disaster. It's something that, like, it's such, like, a vestige of the time also because arguably, you know who I think was the biggest winner other than uh, Gabe and Sal's pocketbook from the Flow Slam deal? Who's that? Brett Lauderdale. (laughs) Very true. So, and, and it's something that, like, the whole entire time period, like, it was such a big thing. Like, I remember, like, that was right when Everything Evolves was kicking up and all of that. And then the lawsuit where they dropped how many buys, like, that Evolve was getting in 2014 and 2015. And me being financially minded, I was like, how much were they expecting to get subscription-wise for this? And I was like, this never would have made sense. This never would have broken even. And, of course, now when we look at WWE Network and Peacock, at another value proposition that will never break even for them it's just one of those like real remarkable things and i also remember that for that wrestlemania in orlando gabe was being so proud of like the production putting money into it and like the flow slam banner like fell down part way through (laughs) and he and he made a big point of well i spent all this money on production you look at all the lasers and then i very quickly like contacted some people in the area and and i found out how much it cost to rent a laser machine for that weekend and it was not a lot of money it was not a lot of money whatsoever the flow slam stuff, I mean, that probably, that needs to be its own podcast, but I don't think I'm smart enough to do it, because uh, honestly, when you were like, who was the big winner out of this besides Gabe and Sal, I thought you were going to say David Bixon's band, just because he got so much content out of the flow lawsuit, True. and that's, yeah. you know, the, the numbers that we saw from the lawsuit, those Evolve iPay-Per-View numbers, it's the only time I've ever seen hard numbers on any Gabe product, and it would have been... More so like late 2015 into 2016, because I I know I saw the numbers at one point for the Dallas WrestleMania weekend, which was Evolve 58-59 and then the Super Show, because that was the most buys Gabe had ever done for an iPay-Per-View. Those were easily over a thousand, I think, for every show. Uh, We don't have anything of 2014, which is the stuff I really would have liked to have seen of especially if you could get like Evolve 29 and Evolve 30, which were the final Drangit USA light Evolve shows into Evolve 31, 32, 33, which were the first Crapple Fuck shows. That was the complete rebranding where they were doing the weekend standings and, and things were drastically changing in that promotion. I would have loved to have seen all that. And, and Flow Slam was one of those deals where I think some people had it in their mind because of a Mike Johnson tweet where he said tomorrow will change the lives of a lot of people, of a lot of people involved in the world of professional wrestling, that Flow Slam was going to be this game changer. But they didn't get Ring of Honor. They didn't get New Japan. I, I would love to know if they ever reached out to Dragon Gate to see if they could carry some of their content, but obviously that didn't end up there. They ended up PWG. They didn't get PWG, which was a huge one. They ended up with, again, the Evolve shows and then, you know, Gabe's new branding with Full Impact Pro, the reboot, and Style Battle, which we'll actually talk about in just a second. Um, and then they had you know, OTT and Ireland for a little bit because there was an Osprey versus Ricochet match that prepare, that premiered on Flow Slam from that OTT show. I remember that being a big deal because that was still when the, the service was relatively new and people were still subscribing to it. But it was just a monumental failure. I remember having an interaction with the Flow Slam PR team. This is probably after WrestleMania weekend because at this point, the service had been around for a while and I just tweeted at them, like, can we please get some Drangit USA on this service? I really would, I really want to watch this stuff. And the response they sent back to me was along the lines of, well, what show would you like to see? And I, I was like, okay, Fearless 2011? <laughs> like, I don't, I don't care. Why, why do you not have a system in place to make sure all of this stuff works? And then 
13 months later it was it was gone and it was just i i i love i love the flow slam era i think that entire thing is just so funny oh it's a remarkable thing and you know kind of one of the last true steps before all in becoming a thing and how everything kind of changed and i actually pulled up because i helped out rich because he was doing an article about this i pulled up the financial data and the buys and it's something that we used to get a lot of the dragon gate usa i pay-per-view and pay-per-view buys for like 2009 through like 2011 and like you see like the distance between that like they started off in flow slam having a combined 709 purchases between only 184 live 510 live and video on demand and then 15 dvds they bought 15 pre-orders for dvds and it, it's something that they had definite peaks and valleys all pretty much slided towards wrestlemania weekend or when they would do like summer slam weekends as well and it's just like a real fascinating thing that you know the, the, the amount of subscriptions they needed to break even at a certain point is not a ridiculous amount but that's just from the contract to WWN alone, not including OTT, not including stuff that started happening with GCW and not including other things. So I think like Wrestle Circus was on there very briefly as well. Yes, because that is the beginning of if everybody bought a re- I, where Wrestle Circus had claimed that I think 100,000 people were pirating their iPay-per-views. I yes, believe that was insane. the number. Yes, and uh Look, I was a day one Flow Slam subscriber, and I had the service until the day it shut down. Uh, there were not a hundred thousand of us all on that website at any point in time. That just did not happen. It, it, it's something like I remember having a, a pretty public like tweet thread about them not refunding me because they did not make a full year under Flow Slam, but they kept by paid a year in advance, and right. they were not refunding me. And it's just insane. I you know? yeah. Just, I guess I would have bought it probably a year at a time too, and I just threw my hands up because I mean the the whole I mean that really. And again, I don't you know this is just an idea that somebody can take, but the year of Flow Slam is fascinating because it starts with the Joey Styles incident on the very first Flow Slam show they do, where Styles makes a just a completely off color and ridiculous joke about Trump. He gets fired. You've got the shows with Dick Togo on them, which also Cody wrestles Ethan Page. You want to talk about trickling into all elite wrestling? Evolve 74, there is a place to look. You've got the Texas shows where it's Chris Hero's final indie weekend, and that's where Peter Casa gets really badly injured and never wrestles again. And then the Mania weekend stuff, which is weird. I, I guess... Well, no, I think I think cru- the Cruiserweight Classic would have already happened, so you don't get Cruiserweight Classic stuff, but you d- it's just so weird. I love that year of Evolve. It, it, it's, it's something that's pretty remarkable, because I feel like that that's something that you could kind of easily still seize, like, even though it had all the grapple flux stuff, there still were some vestiges of the Dragon System there, especially with Peter Casa. Yeah, there's a, a Peter Casa and Ricochet against, I can't remember who they were wrestling, but they wrestled a, an Evolve title match together, and it was like, oh my god, it's like watching Dragon Gate USA. Like these guys are just going out there and doing flips, and this is this is pretty awesome. Well, continuing back on the timeline, I'll throw a few more events at you here, real quick. Uh, this one you know very well. This one you knew before most people. May sixth, twenty eighteen. President Okamura steps down from Dragon Gate, and Shima leaves with T Hawk, L Lindemann, and Takahiro Yamamura. At the end of 2018, New Year's Eve to be exact, Big R Shimizu, Eita, Masato Yoshino, Shun Skywalker, and Susumu Yokosuka are announced for WrestleCon 2019, but they would have to be pulled from the event from visa issues 
on March 29th, 2019, so about four months later, right before WrestleCon. And then some loose ends here. July 13th, 2019, Evolve runs the 10th anniversary show from the arena with Tozawa versus Adam Cole for the NXT title as your main event. On February 4th, 2020, MLW and Dragon Gate announced that they have formed an alliance. And a month later, March 1st, 2020, Evolve 146, the final Evolve show from Melrose, Massachusetts, headlined by AR Fox versus Josh Briggs. Now, Case, you didn't mention the other thing about the MLW Alliance. What's that? Oh, what happened immediately after they announced the Dragon Gate MLW Alliance and what <laughs> happened? <laughs> What storyline thing they immediately did? Uh, the the sudden cancellation of Strong Hearts, ending with, I believe it was Shima being put in a body bag and removed yes. from the arena about 30 seconds before that announcement was made public. Yes, yes. Just funny happenstance there, by the way. <laughs> just, just remarkable how things work out at times. But yeah, no, it's something where, like, the Dragon System stuff in America post-2014 is something I find really remarkable and frustrating because when you talk about wrestlemania weekend 2019 the only people that were going to book the dragon gate people were wrestlecon like that was it there was one booking that aiw had for masato yoshino and i know that i was a part of this i know that there are others who did more so the amount of hustling to try to convince people like no you should book this match this match is great no we have to find place for uh i i'm not going to bury him bury a meme wrestler here it was just so insulting and then the one thing also like continuing with that was shun skywalker in mexico and that whole situation as well yeah skywalker obviously was going to be there at wrestlecon and then was likely going to spend some time in mlw in 2020 so that is now two attempts to get him to, to the united states that have not worked out and that wrestlecon weekend that was frustrating because that was Again, the WrestleCon crew, which I'll, I'll name them by name, you know, Rob Viper was really plugged in there, and he obviously helps book some of those shows, and he was attempting to get the most out of the Drangate guys that he could. I know Black Label Pro had booked Jonathan Gresham versus Masaudi Yoshino, and that match didn't take place, which was a bummer. Um, th that was AIW. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but... It was just a total lack of care from the... And it makes sense, you know, given what the indie scene is now... I mean, what, you think Drew from Beyond is sitting down and watching Champion Gate from Osaka? Like, no, he's not. He's he's watching a gif of the Alley Cat and Billy Starks and moving on with his life. And I'm not saying one is better than the other, but Ring of Honor was founded on this idea of tape traders and this global wrestling community, and the current indie scene is just not that, and that is a little frustrating to think about. Yeah, it's, it's a weird kind of mirror image of how 2019 you still had your work rate indies your pwgs your aaws and some others and then you had this burgeoning class of just like gif indies for lack of a better phrase and as we saw through covid and as we're continuing to see the work rate prestige indies they aren't coming back until they could really like put on their shows whereas the meme indies for worse and for worse have kept up the final note here on the timeline, the last timeline will do. September 2nd, 2020, Gabe Sapolsky announces he has retired from booking and promoting independent wrestling. His final stats, 507 shows from February 23rd, 2002 through March 1st, 2020, 208 Ring of Honor shows, 146 Evolve shows, 
81 Full Impact Pro shows, 50 Drangate USA shows, 9 Style Battle shows, 5 Super shows, 4 shows in China, 2 Jeff Peterson Memorial Cups, and 2 WWN Recruitment Camp Do or Die shows. And that is the legacy of Gabe Sapolsky. I don't have anything to add. <laughs> no comment. No comment for once. I I am bummed that Gabe is finally out of independent wrestling. I think, uh, you know, Gabe and CM Punk, I will continue to say wrestling is much better with them involved than with them not involved. And, you know, Gabe is doing his thing now. I'm not really into any of the current products that he has a hand in for a number of reasons. But... Independent wrestling was largely, you know, the, the independent wrestling that we recognize is largely created off the back of Gabe's vision, and it, it's great that he's getting paid, that he has steady income, that he doesn't have to grind it out in Ybor City, Florida anymore, but I do miss that, so, uh, you know, congratulations to Gabe, you know, that's 507 shows over 18 years is no joke whatsoever. Yeah, especially considering the eras it went through as we've traveled through the show, he weathered a lot before getting the bag twice. So it, it's remarkable. Like, it's definitely an achievement. It's just one of those things that I don't have. Like, I totally understand your mindset with Gabe and CM Punk. And, you know, at a certain point, it's very. I, I've reconciled Gabe as someone who had great ideas for a lot of times, but also I can't disregard some of the other stuff in his personality as well. Completely. And I think with that, since we're through the timeline, it's time for us to kind of do our retrospective that we were going to have. We decided, we as we did the show, we had lists talking about each year, 2009, 2010, 2012. For 2013, 2014, since we were getting so close to the end and there were so little shows, we decided to hold off on those retrospectives for this. But now we're going to look back in Dragon Gate USA in its entirety. And I don't know which one of these you want to start off with, Case, but... Now it's time to talk about our top tens, our top fives, and our worst threes here. So, which category would you like to go for first? Let's do let's do our best five Drangit USA shows and our worst three Drangit USA shows first. But let's start with the best. Is that okay with you? Yeah, you know, I think that the, since that is I, I, a good way to kind of take an overhead view before we start drilling into more of the deeper looks i would say so yeah so we decided independently we did not console each other whatsoever for these we decided to go and look for our top five dragon gate usa shows and let's for all these let's let's start at the bottom and work towards one i think i think that that's probably the the best conceit here so starting off with our top five uh uh best shows what was your number five show my number five show january 27th 2012 from los angeles california Opened the Golden Gate 2012, featured Loki versus BB Hulk, Masato Yoshino versus Naruki Doi, Akira Tozawa versus Pac, and Shima and Ricochet versus Jimmy Susumu and Masaki Mochizuki, among others. Yeah, so this is probably what I would call the sleeper hit show. If you find your, if you get your hands on this show, this is a show that definitely took us both aback here. It ended up as my fourth best show. So it just was a real remarkable thing. And of course, we got Sheriff Loki and then probably one of the better tables matches we've ever seen. That's right. The Sammy Callahan versus AR Fox match, which I, I did not mention, but that is also a great match. So just a lot of stuff there. That is a that is a breeze of a show to watch. If you can ever track that down, sit down with the opening match and watch it all the way through because everything on that show really delivered. 
Absolutely. My number five was Open the Ultimate Gate 2012 from March 30th, 2012. And this is something that I think I have a bit of live bias. This was a show that we talked about with Alan Forel. He was a guest as he was at that show as well. This was the one that had Misaki Mochizuki versus Akira Tozawa. It had Loki versus Pack, and it had the uh, for the vacant Open the United Gate titles, Yoshino and Ricochet of World One International versus Johnny Gargano and Chuck Taylor of Ronin. And it just was something that like started off with an AR Fox versus Rich Swan match, had a Sammy Callahan versus BB Hulk match, had some sleaze in there as well, but I both live and watching it back, it was one of those shows that really kind of resonated with me. And a lot of that was with Mochizuki versus Tazawa. Interesting. Not a show that I considered for this list. A good show, but but one that was not even on my short list there. So interesting that that, that you went with that. I, I do think that is the best of the three shows in Florida that weekend. That is for sure. Absolutely. So what was your number four? My number four, a year later, opened the Ultimate Gate 2013 from Secaucus, New Jersey. The notable stuff here being the Ata and Tomahawk TT versus Super Smash Brothers match, uh, Ricochet versus Tozawa, Bucks versus AR Fox and Shima, and Johnny Gargano versus Shingo in the main event. So that was my number two show. Oh, wow. Interesting. Okay. So the one thing we said privately is we thought we might be very divergent, but we already have two shows that have appeared on both of our lists. I mentioned before, Open the Golden Gate 2012 was my number four ranked show. So Case, what was your number three? Number three, the debut show, Open the Historic Gate from July 25th, 2009. Mike, I'm assuming you had this one ranked as well. I do not have that one ranked. I'm stunned. Okay, well let's let's talk about this show for a second. The very yeah, the, let's do it. The very first one, arguably the best atmosphere drink at USA ever produced. If it's not this one, then it's probably Ultimate Gate 2013, beginning with the the long and exciting Hulk versus Yamato match. Uh, you could skip right over that Two Cold Scorpio versus Ken Dunn match, and I really like Two Cold Scorpio. You've got the Chikara showcase that people still talk about, Dragon Kid versus Masato Yoshino, the Bucks versus Shima and Susumu Yokosuka, and a main event of Naruki Doi versus Shingo. This is, you know, it, it's like I love that we watched all these shows. It's almost a shame that this is not a standalone one-time-only event, though, that if this just was dropped into the ether in the summer of 2009 and they never did another show like that again, I would have had some fun with this as a historical anecdote. But instead, we watched 49 shows after this. (laughs) And it's something that this was my last cut. This was sixth for me. And it's something that... I feel like that this was more of a standalone show, as you were just saying, that as we got into the flow of the promotion and got to do other things, there was more things that kind of resonated with me more than this as a historical artifact. When I'm looking back at like the top five shows of the promotion, like, of course, you should watch Open the Historic Gate. It is one of the best independent shows of all time. It just was something that I, it, it's hard for me sometimes to reconcile this and because you're absolutely right. Like this is almost like its own cultural moment within wrestling. Completely. It's a show where, like, I mean, I know people in my own life that never watched another Drangit USA show, but they love this show and they get excited whenever there is some sort of discourse on their timeline about Open the Historic Gate. It's just a weird communal thing that everybody seems to love. Absolutely. So my number three was Enter the Dragon 2010, the first anniversary show. So a year later from the ECW Arena on July 24th, 2010, and uh, did you have the show on in your top two? It is indeed. Okay, so I just it's something that like top to bottom you have what I think is the 
I, I, I'll be a spoiler here. Well, I think the best match in the promotion's history headlines it. You have the really fun Kamikaze USA versus Chikara Sekigun uh, eight-man elimination tag, which I think was probably the best ever use of a foreign element ingratiated with the Dragon Gate roster. And then you have the four-way case that the more you talked about, the more it resonated with me. Adam Cole versus Chuck Taylor versus Eric Cannon versus Ricochet. And not only that, you've got Shima and Johnny Gargano on this show and BB Hulk versus Masaki Mochizuki. Yeah, so I, it's just something that to me with like what all went on with the show and like this was like when I say like when we got into the flow of the promotion, this was a very powerful show to me. So Case, what was your number two show? Well, Mike, we'll do this beauty pageant style and I'll tell you my winner because my winner was Enter the Dragon 2010, the first anniversary <laughs> show. So that was what your number three Yes. That was my number one. So that leaves the listeners with my number two, uh, Untouchable 2010 from Chicago, Illinois. Did you have this one on your list, Mike? I had Untouchable 2009 as my best show of the promotion. Interesting. So Untouchable 2009 is actually, if you would ask me going into this project what the best show was, I probably would have said that. But looking back at it... I. It would it would have been my number six. It was the one that just missed the cut. So real quick on 2010, opens with Hulk Tozawa and Quackenbush in a three way match, uh, an excellent Shingo versus Dragon Kid match, an excellent street fight between John Moxley and Jimmy Jacobs. There was a four way that left a little bit to be desired, but the last two matches, Shima and Ricochet versus Doi and Yoshino and Brian Danielson versus Yamato, that is a tough show to beat. That is my number two Dragon Gate USA show of all time. I, and I think the reason why I left that one off was I felt like that Danielson and Yamato was a excellent match, but it didn't transcend to me. Mm. Whereas I think it resonated with you a little bit more. The Spike Mohicans versus Doi Yoshi we talked about at the time, the one show that like showed like all of Gabe's powers in one match. It's uh, like, we, we talked about Ricochet's 2014. It is literally all because of that match. That is Ricochet becoming a star in front of everybody's eyes. Yeah, yeah, and then the uh, Shingo versus Dragon Kid match that I thought was the best match on that show. I think I was higher on it than you were there, but it was like probably the best match that Shingo and Dragon Kid ever had, so that's why it resonated with me that much. Uh, yeah, Untouchable 2009, it is something that there is, it, when it comes down to it, when I'm like looking up and down, you have Davey versus Shingo, you have uh, Danielson versus Doi, you have Masato Yoshino versus Dragon Kid, and just a lot of stuff like he had Brian Kendrick versus Shima wasn't as good as the match they had previous with that or the one they had later. I forget the context of when there was another uh, Kendrick versus uh, Shima match. And then you had the Young Bucks versus Maraha Sapa in the main event. And just like top to bottom, like the the first six shows because of the pay-per-view deal and they're working on the time window, window, there was very little filler during that time. And I think that's something that really kind of stuck out to me as well. It's amazing for me, of all people, to say this. If the Young Bucks match was better, that would easily be in my top five, but that main event left a little bit to be desired, and because of that, I thought there were some shows that were a little stronger across the board, but it is, you know, it, it is tough to beat. That Yoshino versus Dragon Kid match that opens the show is great, and then 
you know, do you have common sense? Danielson versus Doi, Dady Richards versus Shingo. Uh, that should sell you on the show right there. So that is a, a very strong top five. I will read mine uh, five to one one more time just because we got kind of scrambled in there at one point. Mike, you can do the same. For me, my top five Dragon Gate USA shows of all time. Number five, open the ult- or, I'm sorry, open the Golden Gate 2012. Number four, open the Ultimate Gate 2013. Number three, open the Historic Gate. Number two, Untouchable 2010. And number one, Enter the Dragon 2010. So mine, going from 5 to 1, is Open the Ultimate Gate 2012, Open the Golden Gate 2012, Enter the Dragon 2010, Open the Ultimate Gate 2013, and then Open the Untouchable Gate slash Untouchable 2009. A very, very solid list. Unfortunately, what follows, the worst three Dragon USA (laughs) shows of all time. Mike, would you like to kick off the list? Yeah, so my number three is the final Dragon Gate USA show, Mercury Rising 2014, from April 5th, 2014. And as y'all heard last week, it was a show that just, the ceiling on that show was so low, and there were so many just bizarre things that was happening that it was just was one of those things that, in a lot of ways, my my inability to reconcile it and inability to get into it just... It, it's just something that like it had to be recognized as, in my opinion, as one of the worst shows they ever had. Not on my list. Probably the fourth worst show they ever had, but we did the top three for the worst matches or worst, worst matches and shows that we saw. Um, so my number three, 2011 United Finale from the Ace Arena. This was uh, the, the one high <laughs> point being Akira Tozawa versus BB Hulk, which was an excellent match, but... Brody Lee versus Rich Swan in a meaningless squash match. Uh, an eight-man tag with Shima, Dragon Kid, Naruki Doi, and Ricochet against Ares, Jacobs, uh, Jimmy Jacobs, Sammy Callahan, and Yamato. That didn't deliver. The main event, Yoshida and Pac versus Chuck Taylor and Johnny Gargano, was fine. And there is a John Moxley versus Homicide match that we will talk about later on in this episode. <laughs> <laughs> I knew you'd have this one on your list. I knew it just because we, when we talk about that match, that match was so bad that it completely tanked something. And the Ace Arena sucked and it prohibited the tag team tournament, which was already doing pretty well between New York City and Philly. It just completely cut it off of the heels. And then like that, the bizarre setup of the eight man tag on that show, it just was like a fever dream of a show there. My number two is Revolt 2014 from February 22nd, 2014. And a lot of this, a lot of the heavy lifting here with this, with Revolt 2012, I, I got so far through my notebook that I've actually had to have loose sleep papers to because I wanted to keep everything together. You had Tim Dance versus Chris Dickinson in a match that was aggressively fine. Ivelisse versus Sue Young just was not very good. Uh, Caleb Conley versus Yosuke San Maria, which was probably the better San Maria match. The Rivado Brothers versus Taylor and Cassidy, which was awful. And then you ended up with a pretty okay top of the card. You had Nice versus Swan, which I thought was very good. Um, Mr. A versus Shane Strickland versus Fire Ant, which is one of the more incomprehensible matches Gabe ever booked. Air Fox versus Drew Gillack for the uh, Evolve title, which was, I thought, the best match on the show. And then a just kind of really kind of abrupt and deflating Freedom Gate match between Johnny Organo and Trent. Mike Spears, my number two worst Dragon Gate USA show of all time, Revolt 2014. There we go. There we go. And I think we... we, we, we uh, did you have anything else you wanted to add to that? Nope, because I think we got the same number one as well. Yeah, so number one 
from Taylor's, Michigan. It is Untouchable 2012 from July 28th, 2012. In case I know you had a ton of opinions about this as I flip through my notes and and pull up the matches. Give me your thoughts on the worst show in Dragon Gate USA history. It's it's a shockingly bad show. It is hard to believe that it is the same company that would have produced, you know, even a year earlier, look at that weekend of the second anniversary show to think that this is the same promotion. It's hard to believe. And this was, you know, far and away, this Midwest double shot of untouchable and then the third anniversary show, which the, the third anniversary show is not a bad show, but it's also not a very good show. For me, this was the hardest set of shows to get through, even as we hit the end with the lack of Dragon Gate USA talent and some of the, the overbooked messes. I could laugh at some of that stuff. There was some of it that I actually thought was was pretty good. This Untouchable 2012 show, it is John Davis versus Jake Manning, a Rich Swan and Chuck Taylor match that ends in DQ, a super disappointing Super Smash Brothers versus The Scene match, Yamato versus Ricochet, which was fine. Uh, maybe. But then the post-match? I don't even... What was the post-match? I don't remember that. Oh, the post-match was when John Davis came out and just kicked a Yamato in the groin, and it took five minutes for Yamato to leave the ringside <laughs> area. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> it was the weirdest thing. How did they not cut that of the DVD release? But uh, after that, you know, the DUF of Eric Cannon and Pinky Sanchez versus Derek Rise and Nate Matson, Masada versus Pinky Sanchez, and then finally some redeemable stuff with AR Fox and Shima versus Generico and Samurai Del Sol, and then Johnny Gargano versus Akira Tozawa, which was probably their weakest match they had together. I went notebook on Fox and Shima versus Generico and Del Sol, but that does not make up for the atrocities before it yeah i mean the jake manning experience in dragon gate usa like nice guy apparently but just they're not that in it and like just the, all the trappings about it talking about they did this in a flea market the lights went out part way through the super smash brothers wrecked the entranceway and then the brawl between chuck taylor and rich swan in front of 40 people doing concrete bumps and then masada like that's the, I only have to say Masada there. It just was just an abysmal show. And I have written as we were doing the showcase, I wrote down that it does not feel like Dragon Gate at all on this show. It's just awful, awful. One of the worst, uh, one of the worst shows I'd argue that Gabe ever put on. Yeah, that would be an interesting, interesting discussion, especially, I mean, I'm sure there's some, I mean, there's some evolved shows around this time period that are that are probably pretty awful. But I'm trying to think of, I I mean, do you have an answer for the worst Ring of Honor show Gabe ever booked? Because I, off the top of my head, I don't know. I mean, Best of the Super Juniors USA is kind of the one that everyone goes to. But I think the first, uh, other than the three way match at the Air of Honor begins, like the rest of that show is just really, especially when we watch it in 2021 eyes, just really kind of. <laughs> terrible <laughs> there's there's some rough stuff on that show uh there is the eddie versus super crazy match that i like quite a bit uh, the i knew you were gonna say or I, I i at least was thinking you were gonna say best of the american super juniors that show at least though that has danielson versus spanky james gibson versus roderick strong and they always killed it together and then an aries versus homicide match that i really like i mean that's probably the best equivalent for this show where you've got, you know, say Danielson versus Spanky, which was on the level of Gargano versus Tozawa, and then that Aries versus Homicide match, which is probably on the level of the tag team title match on this show. But, you know, 
one show has Masato, one show has Dragon Soldier B. You tell me which one's worse. Uh, you know, I if there's you know, I just I don't want to even have that conversation because both are so bad. So yeah, that's that's probably up there for Gabe. Is it, it? And it's something that it's almost like how did the show get made between these two shows in a lot of ways. So it just is something that I remember getting DMs about us talking about the Taylor show and just like from people that were on that show going like, yeah, that was a rough night. That was a really rough night. Man, so bad. Well, let's stay negative, Mike. Let's let, let's go with our worst three matches and then we'll do our, our top 10 best matches and then we'll do our MVPs. How about that? Yeah, let's do that. So I went first last time. You can go first this one. What's the third worst match in Dragon Gate USA history? Third worst match in Dragon Gate USA history. Phoenix, Arizona, Mercury Rising 2010, John Moxley versus Tommy Dreamer. That was my last cut. Ah. It's such a bad match. <laughs> it's such a bad match. Speaking of nice guys, because we just said this about Jake Manning, I know wrestlers love Tommy Dreamer. I get it. I never want to see this man wrestle ever again. And the fact that he's still wrestling drives me nuts. I did a whole big rant on it on the Mercury Rising show. I don't have the passion for it right now. But Moxley versus Dreamer is just everything I have come to loathe about Tommy Dreamer. It is so bad. It does such a disservice to John Moxley. Yeah, and like this is a time where the, the first big production miscues as they brawled around the arena or brawled around the the theater, uh, the bizarre promo that Mox, uh, that Dreamer cut, and just the match itself. And it, 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 the one note that I have on this match case is my first note I'm going to read off from my notebook. The action will have to speak for itself. The match then proceeded to go into complete black darkness. <laughs> yeah, it is an early sign of like, oh no, like this is this is what we're doing. This isn't this isn't good. Like, can we av- can we avert this? Can we change course? Unfortunately, we could not. Yeah, my number three worst match of Dragon Gate, Gate USA's history is from Open the Ultimate Gate 2014. It is AR Fox versus Mr. A. And we talked about this two weeks ago. It was just was something that, like, one, it just was not a very good match. It, Mr. A at that time has been was greatly, greatly just uh, ruined because of that missed splash. And then just the match itself and the pony ring and all the trappings just made it a uniquely terrible experience and then yeah like Evelise came out and then larry dallas came out with teddy hart and just was a utterly bizarre and terrible match in my opinion i think i hate the thing they did the next night more with the six man where teddy comes out and destroys all five guys because i will maintain that the work between ar fox and mr a before the teddy hart stuff was actually pretty damn good so that is not on my list, but I completely understand your inclusion there. My guess is we have the top two the same. I'm just curious as to what order they are. My number two, Mercury Rising 2012, Sammy Callahan versus Sabu. That's my number one. What is your number two? <laughs> oh, it's from United Finale. Uh, John Moxley versus Homicide. Yes, so we we flipped those. I will talk about Moxley versus Homicide for a second, and then you have the floor on Callahan versus Sabu. For, All right. for me, Moxley versus Homicide is far and away, far and away the worst match in this promotion's history. It is a post-prime Homicide brawl, where, again, they're in the Ace Arena, which I think works great 
at Evolve shows. Evolve 4 was just uploaded to the network. Go watch uh, Brian Danielson versus Bobby Fish from that show in the Ace Arena, and you'll see why promotions used it. It does not work for a Drangit USA show, and it does not work for the brawl that Moxley and Homicide were going for. It's a dull, lethargic, boring brawl that ends with what I think is maybe the worst finish I've ever seen, at least outside of your finger poke of doom. And even then, I I almost find it as offensive, where uh, Homicide is beating up Moxley, and he's blooding him, and he's taking the fork to his head, and then Homicide lays down and puts John Moxley's arm over his chest because the story goes that Homicide was so angry he didn't care about winning. He just wanted to beat John Moxley up. I, I am still. We reviewed this show almost a year ago. I am still offended by how bad this finish was. Yeah. Then you had him go after him with scissors, trying to cut out his tongue. It just was one of those things. And I think that actually is a really good segue into uh, Sabu versus Callahan. Whenever Gabe brought in people from another era we've talked about tommy dreamer you talked about homicide sabu and just in general it always came off as the most worst thing on the show and being live for callahan versus sabu where partway through when i was live i was like i'm gonna go get a drink and just left during this and then watching it back nine years later just an absolutely abysmal thing it kind of ruined whatever the DUF had John Davis was completely kind of handicapped by it and it's a wonder they are Fox was able to recover from this because Sabu's inclusion in the company was some of the worst uh, uh pandering to the past that I think that Dragon Gate USA ever did and the responsibility for all these panderings lays at the feet of one man and I think that the fact that our two worst matches in the company or really three of our top Matt, worst matches in the company involve like these vestiges of the past rather than either new wrestlers or Dragon Gate proper talent tells you a whole lot about what the failings of Dragon Gate USA was. Yeah, it's, it's, it's Tommy Dreamer, it's Sabu, it's post prime homicide. Those are those are all old guys that were eating up young guys in the moment. I at least found an immense amount of humor in Sabu versus Callahan. I I just went back and saw the gif that I gift from this match when I watched it of Sabu trying to do a uh, springboard from the chair to the ropes. And he was probably going to do a, a leg drop off of the ropes, but he just, he jumps off the chair and just sacks himself on the top rope. Yeah. <laughs> like he was meaning to do it. There's no attempt to land on the top rope. He jumps crotch first into the top rope. I've never seen anything like it. It is so insane. You brought up a good point, though, and I and I want to talk about this now. This was on my list of things to get to at some point. The DUF. Infamous is a, a fair way to describe them. I think people have a visceral reaction to them when they're mentioned one way or another. Overall, we, we watched their entire run from the formation in Atlanta to the dissolution with first Pinky Sanchez leaving at the end of uh, 2012 and then Callahan getting signed in the spring of 2013. As an act, how do you feel about them having watched all of it all the way through? I mean, up until Sabu was entered, it actually was a pretty solid act. I mean, the one thing that, like, thinking about the promotion is i wonder if they acted with them as like affiliates of either deep drunkers team doy or blood warriors could have had some more coherence to the overall 
Dragon System storyline, but up until like the image of them standing tall in 2011 was like the the best moment of the group. And then the more that they they decided to continue the Sabu storyline, and then everyone's eventual following out with WWN or signing contracts elsewhere, it, it, it's something that colors I think the uh, historical perspective of them. Whereas when we rewatch it came away initially going like, okay, I like DUF a whole lot more. There were a lot more Sammy Callahan matches of his white trash MMA that made each year's top 10 list than I ever expected there would be. I encourage people going forward to remove the DUF as a punchline because I think what we learned from this series was even with the Sabu stuff, which was atrocious, but through that Miami match, there were at least times where the group... You know, you might not have liked what you were seeing. The matches were bad, but aesthetically, the unit was still, they, they kind of came across as killers. And there's that whole year from Atlanta through Miami. I really like what they ended up doing. And it's it's after that where you have a gap from WrestleMania weekend through the, the Taylor, Michigan and Chicago anniversary show that we just talked about. On those shows and storyline, Callahan was suspended from Dragon USA and Evolve, so he's not on those shows. And then when the action resumes with the triple shot at the end of 2012, you have Callahan doing singles matches that weekend while he wrestles uh, Del Sol, Generico, and Shima, and then Cannon and Sanchez are teaming together. And what you find out very quickly is, oh, wow, this really was Sammy Callahan's unit. You know, no disrespect to Eric Cannon, who actually impressed me a lot throughout the series, and, and Pinky Sanchez is whatever he is, but my enjoyment in the DUF was entirely dependent on whether or not Callahan was involved, and until Miami, it is a really fun, just different act in this promotion that, you know, I think if you threw those guys in the current GCW landscape— I don't know, everybody looks like them now. Like, they wouldn't be special at all. But <laughs> but in Dragon Gate, where you've got, you know, six-pack abs and world-class athletes, yeah, there were some times where it was a little corny, where they were almost like a 12-year-old cursing, where they're like, did you hear I said fuck? Yeah, fuck, I, I said it. Like, there was stuff like that that's a little annoying, but it got the point across. And I really like a lot of what I saw from the DUF, which I did not necessarily anticipate coming into this project. Oh, no. And it's one of those things that I'm looking at my because I use the same document I did for when we did our best of the year lists. And Sammy Callahan had some of the more unique uh, North American versus uh, Dragon Gate Japan matches in the history of promotion. There was the one in low territory versus Doi that I absolutely adored. He had one versus Shima that was excellent as well. Then one a year later against Asumi Okoska. And it's just something that like in a lot of ways it was different enough that left more of an impact than some of the other people that you know that you could take a look at and you'd be wrong saying this but you could make the argument that they are kind of more cookie cutter dragon gate people you know yeah completely so it's you know an interesting thing i really wish the duf would have not been saddled with sabu even you know if you're going to do the ecw thing i mean god i mean i don't know who was out there I don't know if Just Incredible is better than Sabu, but at least, you know, after the first... Let's not say things we can't take back, Case. (laughs) All I'm saying is it is amazing to me that after that first weekend Sabu's there in Chicago and Milwaukee, that they don't go, oh, we're pulling the plug. We we can't possibly do this. The fact that they continue with it for another nine months is pretty incredible. 
Well, who was the person who ran and insisted on doing commentary of his match? Uh, that would be one Gabe Sapolsky. That's why. Yeah. Yep. There was one person who decided that, I would argue. Um, should we t- we're going to do MVPs next before we go over matches, uh, the top 10 matches, right? We can do that if you want. Yeah. Uh, okay. So I did not rank my MVPs. So, Case, I, since you went first last time, I'll go first with mine. My first MVP I have at Dragon Gate USA is Akira Tozawa. Yes. And I think that the way that no one. And I got, and this is something that I know is a little bit of a hot take. I would argue that since Muto, no one has had such an incredible excursion that has changed both their career and their life as Akira Tozawa did. He came in as basically a last last resort, like see if this works out for him here. And he came back to Japan, a featured player, a Kobe World main eventer, and someone that if he remained in Dragon Gate probably would have at this point at least one long Dream Gate title reign. And I think that for the most part, and one of my storylines in this thing is wondering why he never got the belt. And we talked about that a little bit earlier. And that's why I think Akira Tozawa is one of the MVPs of Dragon Gate USA. Well, Mike, why don't you give your next two? Because I, I ranked mine one, two, three. Uh, and I'm curious okay. from your unranked perspective, who else you have on this list? Well, I guess like the way I listed, I would have him as three. So okay. he is three. Uh, number two is Ricochet. Okay. And I think the the, the one person that like... We talked about the Mark Teixeira trade of Dragon Gate USA. He is the Elvis Andrus of this trade. He was the one that became the all-star. He's the one that became the first ever Gaijin, opened the Dream Gate champion. We we talked about his 2014 being one of the most decorated years in wrestling history. And you saw him going from being a just someone that was like a, a drive along with Chuck Taylor to becoming a legitimate star and put him on the path of the world today. And that's why I'm his number two. And for me, my number one MVP... And I did this by looking at the top matches of the year. I didn't like, I, I try to keep it within like how I ranked matches and how I had stuff in my notebook. My number one VP of Dragon Gate USA, Shingo Takagi. Oh, and, interesting. Did not think that's where you were going with that. So, sorry, go ahead. I cut you off, but that, that, that really shocked me. So Shingo Takagi was in 2009 in my match of the year and was in the runner-up for the match of the year. 2010, match of the year, runner-up of the year. And then also ended up in number four, number five. So four out of the top five matches in 2010 at Shingo Takagi. And then he went away for a while. But when he came back in 2013, had the match of the year and had another match in the top in the top 10. And it was something that like his work in this company when he was around elevated the promotion in such a degree that there's no way he could not have been my number one, even if there were these huge chunk of times with, without him in the promotion. I mean, he got he got Wrestling Observer match of the years out of this promotion. So it's I it was a no doubter to me that Shingo Takagi is the absolute MVP of Dragon Gate USA. Hard to argue. I I did not include Shingo in my top three. I felt like you know yes he had fifteen matches, but I, maybe it's just who Shingo was as a wrestler. It even in two thousand nine and two thousand ten, it's not like he felt like he was within the fabric of this promotion. He always felt like a special attraction, which I guess is a compliment when I say it out loud. I kind of use it as a, as a negative though. I, I can't argue with the Shingo pick at all. My three MVP is going from three to one. Uh, we talked about two of them already. Ricochet was my number three. I just, I thought he was tremendous and actually better than I, better than I realized as I tabulated my top 10 matches of the promotion's history. Number two, Akira Tozawa. I think the only other argument that could be made in the Mudo trajectory is maybe if you count 
ECW as an excursion than what Tajiri did, but Tajiri never really went back to Japan and became a big star, because by the time he's back in Japan full-time, it's 2005, and he's, you know, he can still go, but he's older at that point and has never pushed to any degree outside of his own promotion. My Dranga USA MVP, though, I thought this is where you were going, I thought we were going to have the same top three, was shocked when he did not end up on your list. My Drangit USA MVP, the person that I feel is most integral to the success of this promotion, is the man they call Pac. Yeah, he was my number four. <laughs> yeah, and I would probably have and, Shingo at four, so that makes sense. Yeah, in a lot of ways, I feel like him and Shingo kind of mirror each other. Like, uh, what was your argument for Pac as the number one wrestler in Drangit USA? There was no one, I guess with the exception of Shingo, I probably should have had Shingo on this list now that I say that, but I don't think anybody exuded consistency and high-quality performances more than Pac. Every time he was on the show, it felt like a big deal, with the difference being that between uh, the World 1 stuff with Masato Yoshino as a champion and then later Junction 3, Pac felt like he was woven into the fabric of this promotion. He seemed like a Dragon Gate USA guy or a, at least a Dragon Gate guy that mattered in the context of Dragon Gate USA. And I don't think it's by accident that when he leaves in Miami of 2012, the promotion drastically suffers in terms of match quality and just in terms of presentation and professionalism and aesthetics. Look, I'm not saying Pac is hanging you know, lighting trusses above the ring, but there is a level of professionalism that he has sort of demanded or at least commanded throughout his career. And once he goes, it really never returns. Yeah. And, and I think one of the things that helps Pac's argument for this is 2011 was by far the most pos- prosperous year of Dragon Gate USA. It, that was a part of the series that felt like it went on for months of us watching another 2011 show. And I look at my top 10 matches of 2011 and he is in number one, number two, number three, number four, number five, number seven, and number 10. So no one dominated a year as much as Pac did in 2011. And then the stuff he did in 2012, I mean, he ended up with my number two match of the year that year. So I, I see the argument. I, I guess it's, they're two sides of the same coin, him and Shingo. And I looked at the, like the output, even in the spread throughout the the history of Drangate USA was so high that it regard that it needed to be regarded whereas Pack was so concentrated in 2011 2012 that that's why you should be regarded as well. Yeah, that's uh that's a very fair assessment. So Ricochet Tozawa absolutely and then Pac and Shingo being the the two differing opinions there, but I can't argue with your Shingo take and and we are roughly on the same page in terms of our Pac takes. And Mike, I think that leads us to our top 10 matches in Drangate USA history. It's the big list. It's the main event. And since I went first last time, Case, let's start off with you. What's your number 10 match in Dragon Gate USA's history? I'd be more than happy to start. All of these matches, until otherwise noted, are rated at four and three quarters stars. It is always a good feeling when you can have a top 10 list comprised of four and three quarter star matches or higher. And my number 10 is what I feel like is the true final match in the promotion's history, Johnny Gargano versus Ricochet from Open the Ultimate Gate 2014. That was my number 11 match. Ooh, interesting, <laughs> interesting. Uh, yeah, this is, for me, it just, it was the perfect execution of everything we saw. It was all leading up to this, 
and the in-ring was second to none. I thought it was, you know, arguably the the best or the second best Gargano performance we watched over this entire series. 2014 Ricochet simply did not miss whenever he had the opportunity to connect, and this was another one of his many gems that entire year. Watching all of these shows all the way through, it all was made worth it with this match. No, and I think you're entirely fair in the assessment there, and it is something that, like, the conclusion there was so satisfying in the work and the way that it came across there. It felt like the last legitimate moment of the promotion. 100%. And I think it, and I think it definitely uh, deserves recognition. So I, I realized that I graded Dragon Gate USA a little bit tougher than you when I was compiling this thing. Everything that I list until I say differently is at four and a half stars. So, but it, the... My list is all four and a half and higher. My number 10 match is from the WrestleMania weekend 2010. It is the Dragon Gate six-man match of World 1 of Masato Yoshino, Naruki Doi, and BB Hulk versus the Warriors team of Shima, Dragon Kid, and Gamma. It is my number nine, but please, you have the floor. I'd like to hear your thoughts on this match. It's something that with like their first uh, WrestleMania offering and the fact that it is such a big deal. Like this is why the promotion exists in the first place. Was how remarkable the 2006 uh, Do Fixer versus Blood Warriors match was. So if I didn't have that, it, it, if I did not have a lot of that representation, I feel like that that is losing part of the fabric of the promotion, if you will. And it was just something that, like, on a show that had two very bad matches, we talked about John Moxley versus uh, Tommy Dreamer, but also had the Lundrick versus Evan uh, the uh, the Jack Evans and Jimmy Jacobs match that was abysmal as well. But the fact that this was like a full sprint and like this felt big time. And the fact that Gamma was incredibly over and the way that Shima built up Gamma coming over and then completely succeeding. And then like Dragon Kid doing a Bermuda triangle on the elevated stage. Cause this was the one that had like the show in the round and that the stage was elevated was insane. And then Gamma doing a Poison Rana and just the finish of this was just exceptional. And it was something that still resonated with me that out of like the stuff they had that week and that they finished on that note was really positive to me. I completely agree. This is a, a really fun match. Like I said, it was my number nine. One of the big revelations of this project was just remembering how good BB Hulk used to be. And this was, yes. you know, flashy, flippy BB Hulk in rare form. And then you had the continuation of Masato Yoshino and Dragon Kid. And I came away from this match thinking that their pairing was excellent. But my big takeaway from this match when I watched it, uh, when we reviewed it, was just, you know, this was Shima's heaven. This is exactly what he wanted. He had the focus on him in a six-man tag match with a crowd that was eating out of the palm of his hands. And it was an electric performance from Shima. Four and three quarters for me, like I said, my number nine match in Drangit USA history. Mike, what was your number nine? Well, I'm making sure I have the right date for this as we're doing this, but it is Spike Mohicans versus Masaki Mochizuki and Susumi Yokosuka. I think that's from 2012. It is. It is from 2012. I have my date wrong here. This is from Open the Golden Gate 2012, and this is that sleeper show that we were talking about earlier. And just like you have now Ricochet, fully formed you have spike mohicans which is for such a small small period of time that they existed they were truly an exceptional tag team and then you had the original uh mochizuki mochizuki tandem in la and it just was one of those matches that like it capped off a great show and it just was one of the show one of those matches that kept on building upon itself that 
at the end of the match, I was like, all right, that was something special with it. And, you know, Susumu countering a Venus palm thrust into a top rope exploder was just insane. And just four guys just going out there and having a tremendous match. It is one that is on my list. We'll talk about it again in just a minute. My number eight from Secaucus, New Jersey, opened the Ultimate Gate 2013. It is not. It is not Akira Tozawa versus Ricochet. That one just missed the cut. It is the main event from that show. My number eight match, Johnny Gargano versus Shingo Takagi. That was my number six match. So oh, go right ahead. Uh, yeah, I, I, it's interesting. I did, not, I did not think you would have this in your top ten, but it looks like you do. Uh, this is... Everything that Johnny Gargano does well mixed in with everything Shingo does well. It is a slow start. It feels like an epic. And by the end of it, God, it's just so, it's so good. And the crowd is so hot and it's so physical. I mean, Shingo really just beats the shit out of Johnny Gargano towards the closing stretch. And your mileage may vary on the finish. You might not like that it ended with Johnny Gargano cheating and using the rope to choke Shingo Takagi. For me, it gave us the next year of Johnny Gargano heel work, which makes it all worth it. I think sometimes you have to sacrifice that clean finish if you want to get a character over to the degree to the degree that they got Gargano over. It, it is a nearly flawless match for me. I think it is just a brilliant display of pro wrestling and the best match that I think I've ever seen Johnny Gargano have. Yeah, it's something where that is his highest placement on mine. It was at six with that there. Uh, it's just... As a just special match, as an epic, it just was just just like an insane match. And the way the storytelling and the way that at the time where he really needed to do the heel turn, he did the heel turn there. And I felt like that that resonated really strongly with me. And it was something that I think I think back on. I'm like, you know what? That was something really remarkable that they did there. And I came away with that with a really warm feeling in response. So, Mike Spears, your number eight. I'm trying to think if I have the date for this right. Like, this is the problem. I started doing this last night, and I was having issues with the dog, which is a reoccurring situation in my thing. So, it's from 2009. It is from Untouchable. Open the Untouchable Gate 2009 or Untouchable 2009. It is Brian Danielson versus Naruki Doi. And it is a truly exceptional match. Every time that Brian Danielson appeared in Dragon Gate USA, he was something special. He was always something special. And it was the, the right thing to kind of like add a nice little touch here. And the way that they did the, uh, the, the, the man who needs no introduction, the, great, the, the best in the world, Brian Danielson, without having to do the final countdown was really kind of remarkable. And we talked about how we rediscovered how good BB Hulk was during this time period. But... How much I enjoyed Naruki Doi outside of Dragon Gate when he was the Open the Dream Gate champion or in that first run was something that, like, he felt like a touring champion, and this was, like, another one of those touring champion matches that he had in this promotion that I thought was really remarkable. Not on my list, but one that was absolutely tremendous. And, yeah, like you said, you know, Danielson never took a wrong step in Dragon Gate USA. It really makes you wonder what... Brian Danielson in Dragon Gate would have looked like. It's certainly not something you think about on paper, but then you watch it in execution, and it was pretty damn special. Man, I'm thinking about Brian Danielson in 2021 versus UT, and now I'm a little sad. <laughs> yeah, that uh, that sounds very good. I would I would like to see that, but he is too busy wrestling in the Thunderdome. 
Yeah, yeah. So that brings us to number seven case. What was your number seven match? One that you've already talked about. Masaki Mochizuki and Jimmy Susumu versus Shima and Ricochet open the Golden Gate 2012. My only input on this uh, that Mike did not cover is we get extended Ricochet versus Masaki Mochizuki interaction, which for as long as they spent in the same company together, we very rarely got that. And their chemistry in particular uh, really puts this match over the top. It's one that if you love the Twin Gate style, if you love layers and layers of movement, move after move after move, it'll resonate with you. If it sounds exhausting just from the way I'm describing it, it's probably not the match for you. Yeah, no, that's entirely fair. So my number seven match is from 2012. It is from Mercury Rising 2012. It is the Dragon Gate six man. It is Hulk and Akira with Loki versus Misaki Mochizuki, Pack and Ricochet. It is on my and, list uh, later. Go ahead. And it's something that like... This one felt very much like a Dragon Gate six man, like starting with a mad blanky jump to a uh, jump to start the match. And Loki was just really fun in this context where he was teaming with a with what was the dominant Twin Gate team at the time uh, versus World One International plus their older friend. And it just was like it was a different style uh, than like what you would expect from the traditional WrestleMania six man tag match. It was more of a traditional Dragon Gate stuff. And then. It's something that like really made me think it was a big shame that we never got Mochizuki versus Loki. We know that he brought up the book report with him, which was tremendous. And then it and then it kind of like ended with like the idea of Mochizuki finally finally falling to Tozawa's straight jacket suplex, which was a big storyline, at least for the Tozawa fans, the idea that Mochizuki always got his shoulder out, so it was never a full capture suplex, and just was a very tremendous main event on a show that had a lot of issues. Number six for me, United Philly 2011, Pac and Masato Yoshino versus Naruki Doi and Ricochet. Yeah, was a was on my cut on my short list, did not make it. And you know how much I love Die Fly. Interesting, interesting. I thought so. I, I thought you would have this one. We've actually we've lined up more than I thought we would, but not on the matches that I thought we would. Uh, this is from the ECW Arena. This is the final show. They no, no, no. They ran there again in November. I apologize. Uh, but yeah, this is Pac and Yoshino versus Doi and Ricochet. I believe this match is still up on YouTube for free on the PW Ponderings YouTube channel, and it's exactly what you would want. It's one of the early Pac and Ricochet interactions, they would end up wrestling for all of 2011. They were attached at the hip, and it's Doi and Ricochet. I'm sorry, it's uh, it's Yoshino and Ricochet. So you've got two eternal rivals just going at it in this match, and it's everything that Drangit USA, at least in my mind, is supposed to be. You have your uh, your American import wrestling with your Japanese, or at least your native talent. I'll, I'll throw Pac in that in that bunch as well. And they, they did no wrong. This was one that I was a big fan of going into the series and one that held up incredibly well on rewatch. Just, uh, God, it's so good. It's it's Pac and Yoshino versus Doyen Ricochet. You can't beat that. Yeah, yeah. And it has like a nice bit, uh, like looking back at distance, it's two Gaijin. I mean, all of them are Dreamgate champions. You have one of them that was the ace of the company. You have one, and then you have the two Gaijin champions. It's just like a nice bit of like, history and of the tournament it was by far the best match of the tournament and it was just a real remarkable match and a great performance and made me wish that we had more of a Naruki Doi uh Ricochet tag team run because Naruki Doi is one of the best tag team wrestlers of all time and Ricochet was on the same page with him and then Pac and Yoshino weren't too far off from that either yeah, I know I ranked United Finale as one of the three worst shows in Dragon Gate USA history but 
outside of that final show, the first two nights in New York and Philly, those are very, very good shows where a bunch of non-tournament stuff delivers and the tournament matches are awesome. That is a, a fun weekend until you get to the finale. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was something where like everything kind of fit and that was when Ronan really felt relevant at that time. And it was like they felt like players, especially with they had to execute the Blood Warriors turn in front of a live audience because it was not it did not make tape yet or the tape did not get out to the United States at that time. That is true. So, Mike, your number six match, I believe you already said it, but remind us again what it was. That is from uh, that is Gargano versus Takagi from 2013. Yes. Anything else you want to add on that match? No, I feel like we covered that pretty well, and that was my last four-and-a-half-star match. Okay, so you are four-and-three-quarters or higher from here on out, is that correct? Just four-and-three-quarters, yes. Okay, interesting. I am at four-and-three-quarters until otherwise noted, with my number five match being Masad Yoshino and Naruki Doi versus Shingo and Dragon Kid from Open the Freedom Gate 2009. Is this one you had on your list? Yes, that's my number four. Okay, well, let's talk about it now. Uh my God, it's just, it's the the reoccurring theme here. And one of the things that really surprised me, and we'll, we'll talk about his name in a few of these matches coming up, is for someone that ended up saying, nah, I'm good, I don't want to go to America anymore, Masato Yoshino, his output in this promotion was absurd. I mean, he is in multiple top 10 matches for me, and this is one of his shining moments with, you know, Speed Muscle against Shingo and Dragon Kid, the short-lived but legendary Shingo and Dragon Kid tag team. Move after move after move with the ECW arena eating up every single near fall. Yeah, and I think this is one of the uh, best Speed Muscle matches of all time. Yes. I think that this is them at their peak. This is like getting classic stuff, and then you get all the rivalries of Takagi and Big Six playing in there, and just, it is tremendous, they had a tremendous two-on-one segment in this match where they're dominating Dragon Kid in it, and it just was just really like something special watching like this area of speed muscle until the uh, turn leading into Blood Warriors was something really remarkable. A tremendous, tremendous tag match, just the Twin Gate style personified and like I said, it is my number five match in Dragon Gate USA history. Yes, my number five match is another match from the Mania WrestleMania weekend, in case I'm willing to guess that this match might not appear on your list. Which one you got? But it is Misaki Mochizuki versus Akira Tozawa. Not on my list, but one I assumed you would have. You have the floor. So this was a match that was very... Uh, personal to me watching it live especially being someone who was early on the early on the Akira Tozawa train and just like it just like started from the 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 top of this and they had like great dive interaction here and then Mochizuki just dismantling uh, Akira Tozawa Lenny Leonard who is if we had a fifth MVP of the promotion I think we both would say it would be Lenny Leonard by the way (laughs) (laughs) just like just was doing just tremendous work at this time here and it's just like the the idea that uh, Mochizuki popped up from the first German since it wasn't trapped and then immediately locking on. And it just was so special locking on a Kimura there. And just like the, the, the interaction where like Akira Tozawa does the corner chops and the referee counts into five. And then he goes for the cheap shot to the face and Mochizuki not selling it was just and just absolutely decking him, which is Really, really special. And then there was a divorce court on the apron that was just absolutely insane. Absolutely insane. And it just is one of those matches that are, is very personal to me that it would have to be in this, but it is my lowest rated uh, four and three quarter stars match on this list. My number four 
from Milwaukee. We talked about this show with Kelly Harris, Way of the Ronin 2010, Shingo, Akira Tozawa and Yamato versus BB Hulk, Naruki Doi, and Masato Yoshino, Kamikaze versus World One. Yes, that's my number three match. <laughs> so <laughs> that, that, is, that, that has worked out there. And yeah, the first time the Big Six really had a match in the United States. Just exceptional match. And like that, that Miramar Theater show probably would have been in the top 10 for me. Just was a really great show from top to bottom on that and just a tremendous match. Yeah, that show, it's it's a weird deal where there's just kind of nothing on the undercard. None of it's, it really feels more akin to like an MMA show where it's not that the undercard is bad, but it's just kind of there. And then Danielson versus Moxley. And then, like you said, this is the big six. And what I think is probably the most underrated match in Dragon Gate USA history, just because, I mean, again, this is my number four, and I never have heard anyone reference this match as one of the all-time greats in, in this promotion's history, whereas I think what we're going to talk about going forward is at least I, I've heard other people throw it out there. This is one that, for some reason, got lost in the shuffle. I think Danielson versus Moxley being on the sh- same show really overshadowed it, but this is... You know, I, this is one of my favorite Dragon Gate six-man matches of all time in America or Japan. Yeah, and I have this match higher than any of the WrestleMania six-man tags that happened in this promotion's history. I do not, but that is a bridge we'll cross when we get to it. So we've already talked about my number four. It was the Speed Muscle versus Shingo Takagi and Dragon Kid match from uh, t- from November of tw- 2009, also four stars so okay so what was your number three match in the promotions history my number three match the same building as my number four but a year later Pac and Masato Yoshino versus Shima and Ricochet way of the Ronin 2011 did not make my list was very close but did not make the list yeah remember I was a little bit more down on this than you were that's right that's right I I I was so high on this the uh my my notes read uh Shima Meteora fuck you that's the pin it was just, God, it was perfect. This match, this is coming right off the heels of Pac and Dragon Kid versus Shima and Ricochet at Kobe World, and then this happens about a month later, I think, or maybe it happened before. Maybe maybe my calendar's mixed up. Mike, if you could run the date on Way of the Ronin 2011, that'd be great. It was on uh, 9-11-2011. Okay, so, so after, after the Kobe World match. So Pac and Dragon Kid versus Shima and Ricochet at World, to me, is a five-star match. And then a month and a half later, they come to Milwaukee in front of about 7,000 less people. And they have a match of almost equal quality with Yoshino taking the place of Dragon Kid. It is, you know, arguably my favorite style of wrestling is the Twin Gate style. And this is a perfect Twin Gate match. It's the, uh, uh, what, what is what, what are the tag belts called? I just, I just ran that down. Uh, United. The United, United. Gate. Uh, it's a United Gate Twin Gate uh, unification match, essentially, that these Spike Mohicans end up winning. I just think it perfectly executed. It's really just one of those deals where if, you know, we we talked a lot about it this time around 2011, where attendance was going down, markets were really suffering, but all of these shows would have like four and a quarter, four and a half star main events. And it was just like head scratching to us of how were more people not eating this up? This is the best wrestling in America at the moment, other than what's happening in Reseda. And these crowds are shrinking drastically, and this is one of those that, you know, nobody is going to remember Way of the Ronin 2011 fondly. This is a show that isn't a part of the uh, illustrious Dragon USA canon, but the main event is one of the three best matches the promotion ever put on, in my opinion. 
Yeah, this was the show that had the early bizarre Brody Lee Uha Nation segment starting off the show. But I guess like the thing that got to me as I'm looking through my notes is there was a ref bump here that just was kind of egregious to me, and that kind of knocked it down in my opinion. But I, you're absolutely right about like encapsulating the Dragon Gate tag team style with this match, though. Yeah, it's uh, it's one that really left a big impression on me because once I mean, you know, a, a lot of those matches really rely on a hot finishing stretch, and I thought their finishing stretch was executed to absolute perfection. And then, I, I hate to do this to you, Case, but my number three match we already talked about, this was the Big Six trios match from the same venue a year previous, so now we're getting to the top two matches in Dragon Gate USA history. Yeah, you've got, I guess I, I can't figure out what your number two is. Uh, do you have any guess as to what my number two is? Well, you say you said you still have a Dragon Gate six-man tag. Is this where you have the, I don't think you have the Gate to Heaven match this high, but is this the 2013 uh the 2013 six-man tag? It is the 2012 six-man tag, one that you had already mentioned. Low-key, BB Hulk and Akira Tozawa versus Pac, Ricochet, and Masaki Mochizuki. This is the one match in this project that, within the week that we were reviewing this, I went back and watched this match twice, because the first time I watched it, I thought, hmm, that might be a five-star match. I'm not sure. Let me watch it again. And then I watched it again and thought, nope, that's that's about as good of a four and three-quarter match, a four and three-quarter star match as you can get. It, God, I just, I, it's, it's, it's peak Pac, it's peak Ricochet, it's peak Hulk, it's peak Tozawa. Loki is in his element. Mochizuki is there, just crushing people with kicks. I I had not seen this match prior to doing this project, and it is my favorite takeaway, this match that I will never forget. I think it is the second best match in the history of Dragon Gate USA. Well, my second best match features someone that we really haven't talked about a lot on this episode, funny enough, considering how much we talked about him throughout the promotion. It is Davey Richards versus Shingo Takagi from Untouchable 2009, 9-6-2009. Uh, Went four and three quarters here. And it's just something that was just like peak jock wrestling. We had the first really insane Davey bump there. And it just was just a mental match. It wasn't even the main event of the show. And it was something that, like, to this day, I think about this match. And I think that, like, wow, this was a real remarkable uh, feat of wrestling. And kind of, like, gave us a brief glimpse of Davey Richards within this promotion. And, and as much as I do love Wesley Richards as a weirdo, him as a wrestler, I enjoy even more. Yeah, hard to beat. Not on my list, not one that I necessarily considered, but, you know, an incredible match. And and Davey's time in this promotion should be best remembered for the insane dive here and then the even more insane dive against Yamato on the Open the Freedom Gate show where Davey does a, a tope suicida where Yamato literally has to jump up in the air <laughs> to prevent Davey from flying at about 50 miles an hour into the first three rows of chairs. Davey Richards, the one-man wolf pack, we love him, we respect him. Mike, our number one match, it's probably the same for the both of us. For me, it's a five-star match. For you, it is four and three quarters. Is it Enter the Dragon 2010 Danielson versus Shingo? Oh, you know it. Yes. It is four and three quarters, the best match in the history of Dragon Gate USA. For me, it is, it is five stars. I came into this project with it as a five-star match. I leave this project with it as a five-star match. I, you know, look, it's Brian Danielson versus Shingo Takagi. What, I, what else do you want? Yeah, and, and it's something that they worth this like a huge main event. And this was a match that was not on the pay-per-view, but was later released on YouTube. I believe it's now pulled from YouTube now, but it's just as one, one of the best matches of the last 20 years, I would say. It is worked 
in a way where you you would almost think this is the vision that Danielson had for Evolve when he was originally supposed to be behind it. It's just violent and intense, and it feels big. It's really probably... Well, no, I guess, I, you know, it, it's a Shingo thing, because Gargano versus Shingo kind of has that big fight atmosphere. But even, you know, Pac and Yoshino versus Shima and Ricochet, the Miami six-man, the the World One Kamikaze six-man that we've talked about, those are all great matches, but they don't necessarily have that big fight feel yeah. that Danielson versus Shingo had. And it's something that is absent until Shingo shows up in Chicago's New Jersey a few years later. Yeah, and it's something that, it's one of those things that, we've talked about on here with Alan Forel. It's just something that it's real remarkable how just incredible of a wrestler that Shingo Takagi has been for the last 16 years. And this is one of those matches that because of the time frame people forget about, but it is one that if you have the ability to go back and watch this match, you should go back and watch this match. It is the epitome of the big fight aura. It is the epitome of you can't kill him, but I will try to kill you before you kill me. It is just... One of the best wrestling matches in Dragon System history, just bar none. It's on my short list of five-star Dragon System matches, and it is Brian Danielson versus Shingo Takagi, which almost feels like cheating, but I'm going to count it. So that is our top 10 matches of Dragon Gate USA history. We compiled what we're going to label bonus disc DVD matches. These are five matches that... You know, at least for me, I didn't really consider them to be in my top 10 at any point, but I also feel like these matches are are integral to the story of Drangit USA, either for historical significance or just because they're really damn fun matches. Mike, I can go first. I'm just going to read through all five if that's okay with you. Yeah, I took a different route with this as a bonus disc idea, so I'm interested to hear yours, then I'll talk about my route and what I did with this as well. Sounds good, sounds good. So for me, again, my bonus disc DVD, this would be, if you're if you're making the compilation of the best of Dragon USA, it would have the top 10 from me, the top 10 from Mike, and then these would be your leftovers. These would be really fun. And for me, the five would be Adam Cole versus Ricochet versus Eric Cannon versus Chuck Taylor from Enter the Dragon 2010. Pac and Ricochet versus Chuck Taylor and Akira Tozawa from Open the Southern Gate 2011. Masaki Mochizuki versus Sammy Callahan from Fearless 2011. Pac versus Brody Lee from Bushido Code of the Warrior 2011. And the Gate to Heaven match, the Bucks and Ricochet versus Shima, AR Fox, and Tomahawk TT from Bushido Code of the Warrior 2013. Those are some just incredibly fun matches you mentioned, especially that that Tozawa uh Taylor tag team match where Pac bleeds the most I've ever seen him bleed in his life. Nuts. And I take a picture in picture. It's just nuts. It's just nuts. No, that so, so that would be cases half of the bonus disc. I went in a different route with this case. I picked matches that for our listeners, they're basically on two services that you can go pick up. I picked matches from the Dragon System during this time period, not in DGUSA. Oh, very interesting. Okay, okay, go ahead. So the majority of these matches, except for this first one, you can either find on the High Spots Network or you can find this on independentwrestling.tv. Number five, though, is Speed Muscle versus the Motor City Machine Guns from TNA Impact episode 207 on June 9th, 2008. That is probably the, the widest exposure that uh, Speed Muscle ever had on, on North American television. Number four is from Kurt Russell Reunion 3. It is El Generico, Masato Yoshino, and Pac versus Akira Tozawa, Kevin Steen, and Super Dragon. That is from January 29th, 
2012 we talked a bit about the wrestle union show about how this is the show that also happened when open the golden gate 2012 was happening and just was a really kind of fun ride the next one is from chikara king of trios 2011 night three akira tozawa versus eddie kingston just an absolute blast they always would have eddie kingston versus the traveling tough guy on these chikara trios weekends like he had matches against necro butcher against yoshiaki yagi just like just like another one there Number two is from Takarasaurus Rex, King of Show, from July 25th, 2010. It is Shingo Takagi versus Equinox 2, or better known as Jimmy Olsen. Just stiff, hard-hitting, and Jimmy Olsen was one of those Chikara stars that never really got higher than it. He got out of wrestling, but this was a really kind of, this was a surprise match on that show. And then my number one bonus disc match, and I think is probably, if you want to get why longtime Akira Tozawa fans are so emotionally invested with him you should watch this match from pwg cyanide a loving tribute from poison from december 11th 2010 it is akira tozawa versus kevin Steen. a match that kevin Steen credits with reinvigorating his love for wrestling yeah it just was like i i just picked five matches that i felt like with this like because we we i have a list that i will post after the show is up that has all my top tens and then all of the rankings we've been talking about case but this was like a match that like you, you could go with the uh, Tozawa versus Hero matches, but him versus Kevin Steen was just a absolutely wild brawl. From Tozawa's PWG run, I would probably go with Tozawa and Steen versus Generico and Ricochet from All-Star Weekend 8. Either I think that's night two that that match happened on. That is that is one of the wildest tag matches I've ever seen. And, and every once in a while, that's a match that will get gift and people freak out. They go, what match was this? It's like, go, go to the high spots network, subscribe for a month and just watch that match on repeat. Cause that match is, is absolutely nuts. So that's the top 10 matches. I, I like that. We went in a different route for the bonus disc stuff. That was very fun. Uh, yeah, and that is uh, th- that is when it comes to the matches in Drang Gate USA, that is what I have that I have as essential viewing. Mike has top 10, and then stuff that you can find that is accessible on other streaming services. What else is on the docket for us, Mike Spears? So we have a couple of questions from uh, viewers or listeners. Podcasting is not a visual medium. From listeners <laughs> that we put out there that kind of tied into some topics that we were going to cover, but now we'll cover them with questions and we just asked like just overall DGUSA questions and I think the first one is going to be from Gerard Detrolio asking us what member of the Dragon Gate main roster that never made it to DGUSA do you wish actually did? Great, great question. Uh, and I, I have only seen one of these questions in advance and that is not the one that I saw in advance. A- at least as of the time when Dragon Gate USA was running, I think they did a good job of filtering in most of the guys that matter. The the one that I'm disappointed never made it over, at least in terms of the time period we're talking about, is Don Fuji. Because I think... Yes. Yeah, I think he would have had a charisma that would have translated. Other than the WCW stuff, the only time that he wrestled in America was on a PWG weekend, which I believe was another All-Star weekend, but I don't remember the number. And he wrestled Stalker Ichikawa, and then he did a, a, a comedy match the next night. So we've never really seen serious Don Fuji in America. And I think if you would have run, you know, Fuji and Mochizuki, we saw, you know... Uh, we saw Mochizuki and Susumu against Eric Cannon and Sammy Callahan. I would have liked to have seen the next incarnation of that, of Callahan and Cannon against Mochizuki and Fuji. Yeah, Don Fuji, I think, is the answer. Given the time period, KZ is someone that was still lost post or on excursion at this time. And the other people that have been mentioned, it's just too early in their career. 
really there. But Don Fuji, like, here's a match that you, you kind of alluded to there that I think would absolutely rock would have been Don Fuji versus Sammy Callahan. Oh, it would have been, at this point in Sammy Callahan's career, it would have been awesome because what we discovered was, oh, that's right, Sammy Callahan used to be an awesome wrestler and then he got signed and then he started spitting and I don't know what happened. But there was a point in time where, you know, Callahan versus the Drangate guys is, was a highlight on every show. I guess the other one that I'll throw out there, and he was someone that was booked but not booked enough, I would have liked to have seen more Genki Horiguchi in this promotion. Uh, we saw him wrestle as a heel in 2009 once, and then we saw him at the end of 2012 as a babyface. I would have liked to have seen more of him, especially in the babyface role, which is how I prefer Horiguchi, because he had a charisma that the audience really became invested in and would have been a better option instead of, to me, Ryo Saito. Yeah, no, I think those two have been the ones we would have liked to see more. And I think, like, given the time, like, the fact that Gamma was so over in 2010, like, I think bringing Don Fuji over and, like, starting off with, like, a Soccer Chikawa match and then having him do serious stuff and having that DUF thing would have been the way to go with him. All right, so next one is from Philip Pajic, 97, from Discord. Who is the one Dragon Gate talent that we wish wrestled more in DGUSA? We kind of covered that one, but the same question about what is the non-Japanese talent during that time period well I mean I could say Horiguchi I can also say Shingo just because I was you know know, we went from 2000 the end of 2010 through 2013 without seeing him and I you know he certainly would have made those 2011 shows that were very good in the first place better and he would have been a lifeline in 2012 when the shows were pretty dire what was the second part of his question oh what non-Japanese talent do you wish you have seen more in DGUSA non-Japanese talent that I wish I would have seen more of in DGUSA. Um, okay, yeah, I, I got I got two here, and they're they're related to each other. El Generico and Samurai Del Sol. I feel like we only scratched the surface with what we could have done with Generico. We never got a Gargano versus Generico title defense, which, which bugs me. I understand logistically I don't... I mean, there was an opportunity to do it because they were on the same shows, but it seemed like Gabe was maybe saving that and then just never got to it. And Samurai Del Sol, by the time he gets signed, it feels like he's starting to really become a special talent. And it's a shame that his last weekend is wasted on the ladders are legal seven-way fray instead of doing something that he would have been good at. Yeah, no, I think that those two are really, like, the big ones... Um. We never really got full Uha Nation. That's true. And that a lot, a lot of that is because he uh, tore his knee in the WrestleMania weekend in Miami. But he would have been the person that I would have really liked to see a bit more of in the promotion. Uh, and then now let's go to well, well, hold, on, hold, on, hold on one second, real quick. Um, I guess you could say the Young Bucks too, because the, you know the mm-hmm. Bucks are missing for a while. Is Davy Richards an appropriate answer there? Because I feel like we should probably mention Davy. I mean, we should always be mentioning Davy Richards. To be fair, it, yeah, one hundred percent. Yes, I, I guess we'll we'll save our we'll save our Davy talk for later. But I wanted to I want to at least throw him in as someone that I would have liked to have seen more of. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and this is from Subcheck, also from Discord. If DGUSA were to restart post pandemic, which US indie talent would you most want to see used? God, um, <laughs> if the twenty twenty one US indie scene. Lee Moriarty, Jordan Oliver, but I have to agent the Jordan Oliver matches. I'm going to tell him exactly what he can and can't do. Because here's the thing. 
I watch Jordan Oliver in AAW, which is a little bit more hands-on of an indie, and he's always super fun there because there are people within the AAW office that know what the fuck they're talking about, and they're able to guide him to these like fun seven-minute matches. That's all he has to do, and he always succeeds in AAW. GCW is another story, and MLW, I... I go so hot and cold on them. I haven't seen his work there in a long time. But Lee Moriarty is the obvious one. Jordan Oliver is fun. Calvin Tankman's a guy that I think would create some interesting matchups there. But Mike, you're, I mean, you know, you're a little bit more plugged in than I am at this point to the U.S. indie scene. Is there anybody that I'm forgetting? Well, Lee is the number one with the bullet. I think that that's fair to say. And, you know, I feel like that he would mesh with people. And I know that with how highly he holds Masato Yoshino that's a match that will be a real shame does not happen before July uh Calvin Tankman's very interesting in that because I feel like that you could do like Tankman versus John Davis Tankman versus uh Mochizuki Tankman versus Yokosuka and those would all be very interesting Calvin Tankman versus KZ that would be a wild match there um but really it's difficult. I mean, there's people in other scenes I would like to see in Dragon Gate USA, more so the US indie scene. I think that it would be very interesting to see like your Dan Maloney's there. I think Dan Maloney would be very interesting in that. I think Adam Brooks would be very interesting in Dragon Gate USA. But the US indie scene at this point, like I, I've talked about this in other places, but it's something that I, very much so is of I'm of a mind. Oh, Freddie A. Hi. Freddie A. High yeah, and Dragon yeah, Gate the, USA be, would be positively interesting. Yeah, that would. I, I don't know if that would be good, but that would be interesting. Yeah, yeah. Freddie A. High versus Super Shisa. <laughs> like that's, and, and, and I'm going to go and say, Shisa, pretend that we're in Kobe, Kobe Lapis Hall. You have 15 minutes. Go have fun. I think I would be more interested in a lot of like the luchadors that I've been watching lately. You know, Laredo Kid, who was out there. I mean, people know who Laredo Kid is, but I think that would be interesting. And then I, I'm, you know, I'm drawing a blank on all of their names right now, but Latigo. Yeah, L- Latigo and is Ares? Is that who I'm thinking of? Ares. Ares. Yes. There, there's there's a lot of luchadors that I'm very intrigued by right now. Some of whom Jimmy is wrestling in Mexico. Uh, you know, when Jimmy's healthy, those are the people that I would like to see have some more extended interactions with with the Dragon Gate talent. There's just, I, I don't know. I mean, AEW is returning with shows coming up here very soon, so I'll reinvest in the U.S. indie scene for them, but I'm just so disconnected from that scene right now. Yeah, yeah, and it's hard to have stylistic fits in a lot of ways. Actually, you know who would probably be really interesting here, and I feel like that they're, with the current style, could be very interesting? Who's that? Kevin Koo. I know. I, I mean, I haven't seen Kevin Koo wrestle a match in a in a very long time. Uh, but I at least like the idea on paper. So yeah, let's add Kevin Koo to the list. Yeah. So from there, those were the Discord questions. Let's hop on over to Twitter, where the, this one is not going to require a lot of kind of basis or a lot of time here. It's from friend of the show Adam Sanderson. What what did the Japanese office see as the future future of Dragon Gate and Dragon Gate USA? From the names the office suggested for the last show, it seemed like that they were they saw some future of Dragon Gate USA, but more as an excursion learning opportunity for younger wrestlers. And I, I I'll take this first case. I think Adam's pretty dead on. I mean, the people that were listed in that email. I mean, Shimizu and Katoka and uh, Mondai Ryu. They were people that would have been of age to go on an excursion at that time. 
So I think that's where it really where it was. They would have probably still sent over a couple of stars for the most part, but I think we were going to see a transition more of it as an excursion place. And then you think about 2014, they would have had opportunity to work Evolve. They could work AAW. They could work PWG. They could have got a healthy route of ring work if they were over there for excursion. Yeah, it was certainly trending in that direction where I think you would have seen a lot of the millennials, and I think the millennials would have been really over you know, that was an issue that was uh, present even in Dragon Gate Japan between Western fans and Native fans was, and we talk about it now with Masquerade, where the Western fans are really into Masquerade and they were really into the Millennials because we're not necessarily focused on the promo aspect of things, whereas Masquerade is currently struggling and the, struggling and the Millennials did struggle with promos in, in Japan. So I think we would have been seeing a lot of T-Hawk, a lot of Ata. You know, UT would have been a ton of fun, even at that time. And, you know, I've said on the show many times I was really slow to come around on UT because I always just kind of looked at him as the lesser millennial and then a guy that could never stay healthy. But, you know, he could have been on those shows with Shimizu and Kotoka. I think that would have been a lot of fun if you were sending over, you know, your three or four youngsters a weekend with your one veteran, whether that be Shima, Doi, Mochizuki, Yamada, whoever. I think that would have been interesting. I think specifically ending when they did as a bummer, just because Drangit talent just it changed so much over the next year or two. Because by 2015, KZ is now becoming a guy, and maybe maybe that's where KZ takes the mantle over that Tozawa had of being the fun guy that always delivers in America and always tries hard. Because as we've seen in Japan. KZ has taken over Tozawa's mantle of the guy that is good but not good enough, who always has these incredible match of the year contenders. And so he really starts get go- getting going around this time period. Obviously, I think that the Golden Goose would have become Flamita because there was a race for so long to get this guy into the States. AIW, of all places, is, to my knowledge, the first reputable U.S. indie that ended up booking Flamita. And then from there, it was very briefly Lucha Underground. And then he ends up, I think by 2016, he's working the WrestleCon Super Show. And from there is a a guy that could be booked when he wasn't in Japan or doing high-profile spots in Mexico. But at least in 2014, T-Hawk, Eita, UT, Flamita, Shimizu, Kotoka... And, you know, a veteran here and there, that would be your best case scenario. Yeah, yeah. And I think it's something that with the way that they looked at people who were brought over from America on the other side, it there were not a lot of people that would have necessarily fit that mold. Like maybe Shane Strickland could have done at that time in his career, could have done well with a prolonged st- stay in, in Kobe in the dojo. But it, it would have really been just an excursion spot, I feel like. So I feel like Adam, Adam was on the point there. So second to last question case. This is from Dragon Gate USA veteran and current voice of Dragon Gate, Larry Dallas. Who are the biggest surprises to go over to Japan? And who are you surprised never went over? Well, the obvious answer to the first part of that question is Scott Reed. Yes, Scott. Just because that's, I mean, that's a trivia question. Oh, fuck, Scott Reed did a tour of Japan, and he did it at Dragon Gate? Oh, shit, I missed something. Uh, I guess the other one you could say is Brody Lee, just because it obviously ended up making sense once you saw him in that environment, but I don't think anybody was pitching, you know, let's get Brody Lee over to Dragon Gate at any point before he ended up there. 
and then it ended up, you know, it not only worked out, it worked out to such an amazing degree and it's such a bummer that he was only able to do the, the two or three tours that he did there. So thinking about what Drangate typically likes in their foreign talent, Scott Reed is just the obvious, like, oh, wow, he did do a tour. And, and then Brody Lee is, I think, the a little bit of a less obvious answer there. Right, yeah. And, I mean, Anthony Nice. Like there was like a period that it made sense that he was over there, but like the far the farthest we got away from the fact that like he remained in Drangate programs like until he was in the Cruiserweight Classic was something that always will forever pop me. Uh, people that we were surprised did not go over. Uh, I, I, Strickland is someone that I felt like would have made sense. Like I feel like that, and it would worked both ways. So I think Strickland would have been my guess there. Yeah, I, I I'm surprised that you're you're latched onto Strickland there. Just I mean, I guess if Drangit USA continued, he probably would have had a shot because Gabe, you know, right. was was using him through WrestleMania Week in 2015 and Evolve. I just you know, do you think 2014 Shane Strickland was better, or worse, or the same as 2010 Ricochet before he toured Japan? Worse, but I think we saw in 2016, 2017 with Shane Strickland that he came together and that could have accelerated it if he had a prolonged dojo stay. That's fair. That's uh, I, I can't argue that. That's fair. Uh, guys that didn't go over, I mean, Samurai Del Souls, the one that we talked about there was, you know, mm-hmm. an extreme bidding war for him. And it it just didn't seem like after his debut, it seemed like there was no shot, even if he ended up turning it around. I, I guess I've got two others here. One being Caleb Conley, just because... Scott Reed went over, and I really think had Drangit USA continued, you do have the hurdle of Trent already being a New Japan guy, but I really, just on a personal level, would have liked to have seen Nice, Conley, and Beretta in Japan. I think that would have been super interesting, and I think they would have done well there. The other name that I have, uh, one that you're probably not expecting because he did not work very many Drangit USA shows, I believe he only worked two, actually, but ACH... Seems like a guy that, you know, if if I was Shima, God forbid, but if I was Shima in 2012, working with this guy on one weekend, I would have been doing everything I could to get this guy into Japan. Yeah, yeah, and I guess, like, because he only had one weekend, that's why I didn't really consider him. Other names, uh, I think the Ants would have been over there, but I think they have been over not necessarily as workers have been over kind of as like a oh look at how wacky this is and they've been put in matches with stalker and don fuji yeah but I yeah, think there, there's, some, there's some wrestle jam energy with the ants there that i think dragon was trying to move away from <laughs> you yeah, know that's very true that's very true real uh cyber gang hours <laughs> yeah. so there is just like you know, I, I can picture it now of if the ants came along a little bit sooner than they did, some grimy 240p YouTube footage of the ants versus Owasa and Arakid, and that would be like the one Dragon Gate match that would have been in circulation with Western fans at the time. Uh, you know, I, I think the ants probably would have done well there, but as a as a comedy team, not as a, a legitimate, you know, wrestling act. I mean, man, you say it like it's a bad thing. I would love to see Arayawa versus Fire Ant and Green and or Fire Ant and Soldier. And I feel like that match, it might be a little jokey, but I felt like that you could probably get a really solid 15-minute match out of them during the WrestleJam era. It would have been, I, I, I said this and, and you disagreed with me, but it would have been fun to have seen Gulak wrestle more Dragon Gate guys. I thought he did really well. I think just the one time he had the opportunity, that six-man when it was... Uh, you know, the Gentleman's Club against Shima, ACH, and a third guy that I can't think of. 
it was like, man, Gulak could grapple with these guys because that's, you know, they, they the Drangit guys like that tricked out grappling stuff. And Gulak, maybe with his presentation, especially in 2012 through 2014, that might have not succeeded. But you put him in the soldier ant get up and that has a shot of getting over to some degree. That would have been fun to see. Yeah, yeah, I guess I th- thinking about Gulak in Japan, I go back to like Davy Richards, who was not over at all when he was in Japan <laughs> or in Dragon Gate, rather. Yeah, so well, it, it's, I mean, was Davy ever really over in Noah or New Japan? Yeah, no, I mean, fair point, fair point. Uh, last question, and I picked this one to go last. So I feel like it's a good question to start wrapping things up with. This is from Patrick Cosmos. Do you think Dragon Gate could have made a U.S. expansion promotion work long term with Gabe in charge or otherwise? Was the concept itself doomed, parentheses, costs, climate of the Indies, or was it just mishandled? Would DG would have eventually withdrawn support regardless? Okay, there's a lot there. I, I think... Yeah, so first first part first. Should we do that one first? Uh, do we think it would have worked long term with Gabe in charge or otherwise? Well, I, n- not with Gabe in charge, because I, I think the, the two-part question, I think the parts are related. If... Could Dragon Gate run a New Japan strong equivalent? Absolutely. I have continued to say, you know, for as down as I am on New Japan, the Dynasty is dead, Super J cast Discord, cyber bullies me, whatever, whatever. Uh, I am continuously so impressed with the fact that New Japan is running a multi-continent global operation in doing it successfully. I mean, yes, when WWE does their, their yearly Japan tour and whatever they're doing in India and plus the blood money in Saudi Arabia, obviously, yes, that's a global enterprise, but in terms of operating wrestling ecosystems in the UK and Australia and the US and in Japan, I mean, what New Japan's doing is incredible, and I, I really feel like it's it's underrated to some degree. I don't know if they get enough credit for having as successful of a global operation as they have. Could Dragon Gate run little studio shows in Los Angeles and then do their one big show every four months? Probably. I mean, realistically, if you had, you know, Gargano, Taylor, Ricochet, Swan, and let's say John Davis as your five contracted American talents, and then your your Drangate guys on excursion, your Drangate guys that are, are choosing to be there, yeah, they could probably you know, run a small circuit, again, akin to what New Japan Strong is doing. I just don't know if that's cost-efficient. That's just, you know, your best-case scenario, thinking about it as a creative, mm-hmm. not as a businessman. But it it would have been possible, but not under Gabe Zapolsky's vision, which I, I, I'll i let you answer, then I can explain on, on why I don't think Gabe could be involved. Yeah, because I, I think Case's proposed model makes perfect sense, because that's what Dragon Gate USA was originally going to be. It was going to be several super shows a year. They were going to be on pay-per-view, and that was going to be it. It wouldn't have burnt out territories. It wouldn't have blown through storylines. It wouldn't have required more bookings. It wouldn't have required you to be like, all right, now we need to see how we can run here and here and here on this weekend and make up the tickets. I think that it would remain special enough. And as we've seen since Dragon Gate USA, the rise of the fly-in wrestling fan would have worked for quarterly shows or just periodic shows and then you know batch tape stuff in los angeles uh we've seen them batch tape stuff for dragon gate network and as we've seen with uh with dragon gate since they added english commentary to the network the uh, 
it was at a nadir of fan interests in the West, and it's slowly but surely has risen to the point of where it is now, where it's not close to 2006 and it's not close to 2009, but it's at a place that is a lot more healthy than it was before the end of the Ustream days. So I, I think it was possible, but I, I'm interested to see, see your argument about how it can't be gay because I don't think it could have operated with Gabe Sapolsky either. Yeah, so, so repeat just for me, what was the second part of that question? The second part, well, well the second part of it was of that one question was with Gabe or otherwise. And then the uh, second question was, second question was, was the concept itself doomed because of cost, climate, the Andes, or was it just mishandled? Yeah, I, I actually, I think those two are related. I, Gabe, you know, we've complimented him a lot on this show. Gabe has his strengths. The issue with Dragon Gate USA was never, up until the final few shows, it was never the talent. Uh, it was never the in-ring quality. There were things about this promotion that became unbearable, though. You know, uh, TJ Hawk talks about it in, in his reviews of shows that happened at the time from, from 2012 onwards, basically, of like, why am I watching a Dragon Gate USA show? I can get, for the same price a PWG show that's going to have better matches with none of the dumb angles. And that is something that Gabe was constantly fighting was this idea of wanting to put on the best show as possible, but also seeing the bigger picture and trying to develop these talents. And there was, there was friction there that never really had anywhere to go in the, the other issue. And I think we learned this, uh, uh, from Drangate UK, even from the, the little bit of footage that you've seen, the little bit of footage I've seen is, at some point, Drangit USA stopped being marketed as a superior product, and I think that is what contributed to the burnout more than anything was, you know, yes, we made fun of him at the time for the Golden Circle, and it's not a pre-show, it's bonus matches, uh, but when you run these dirty buildings with bad lighting in bad conditions for fans that want to invest in a premium product but aren't given the opportunity because of things that can be controlled, you lose that audience because at no point did Drangit USA ever have a venue that was cool like Reseda. They just had venues that were shitty like Reseda without the charm. And I think it's the external factors of this promotion that hindered it more than anything. The fact that you know, we spent so much time on the show harping about production issues, not because Mike and I get off on on showing our production knowledge, but because they were integral to the story of Drangit USA. It's one of those things that couldn't be avoided. You can't talk about this promotion without eye pay-per-view failures, without bad microphones, without name card graphics that are just completely inaccurate. It's that sort of stuff that wears and tears on the viewer over time, or if you're watching these, you know, 50 weeks in a row like we did, that's the stuff that I think burnout audiences more than anything was this feeling that they're being insulted, that they're paying for a product that was just not up to the standard of the first few shows. Because the golden era of Drangit USA, it dies after the fourth show when Davey Richards leaves the promotion. Anything from that point forward is just a different ideology. It's a different promotion. And at times, it's great. Most of 2011 is awesome, but it's never the same. And if Dranga USA was going uh, to exist in any light going forward 
or, you know, as a standalone promotion, it would have had to have been with someone that cared about that stuff more than Gabe did, because we've learned over 18 years, Gabe just does not care. Yeah, and I think that's like my main thing is that the I look at Dragon Gate USA as Gabe's landing pad after his Ring of Honor tenure ends. Yes, he had this relationship he cultivated with Shima, mainly, and Takashi Okamura and Toru Kido, but this, w- when you compare it to like what he did after Dragon Gate USA and Evolve, where he was not, in a way, handcuffed by Dragon Gate stuff, you can see that that was more the stuff he was interested in. He never truly incorporated the, like, the core tenets of Dragon Gate Japan into the promotion. I think culturally, he just didn't get it. He like he liked the style of wrestling, and he thought the style of wrestling was innovative. But he didn't get the other things that people who are now habitual Dragon Gate viewers watch and desire. Well, it's and that, it's that, that, that funny that... Western disconnect. You know, Gabe saw the great matches and thought that was the product. But anybody invested with any sort of emotional investment in Dragon Gate as a Western fans, they know that there's something deeper. And I don't remember. I think we talked about this with Alan Forel off air. But when Drangit UK launched, the promoter of DG UK sent out a message on the internet and said, you know, what can I do to make this the most authentic Drangit experience possible? And people noted, you know, well, they play Dragonstorm and they read down the card before any of the matches take place. And that's something that Drangit UK always did. I think if you would have asked Gabe at any point during Drangit USA how a Dragon Gate show begins, I don't think he would have had an answer for you. Yeah. And when he, like, started adding all the units like that was like oh that's something that, that dragon gate does but it didn't have like the heart of it like the only unit that they added that culturally felt like a dragon gate unit in a lot of ways was ronin but he always sticked to trios he always sticked with that and as we've talked about on the main show having trios really prohibits a unit and he didn't get that and it's very reflective of when you thought about like unit warfare of ring of honor i just think culturally he did not get the product beyond big matches and then as you said like i could go on my own tangent about the production things but it, it it's not a eye-pleasing product it's something that whenever people have asked me like oh when do you think this is going to go up on peacock or on the network my answer is always never just because of how visually and audioly audioly bad the product is like it's just not a professional looking product and it's a shame because as we've spent the last two and a half hours talking about, it, it, it's a very special time and it's a, it was a very special promotion. So it, it would have like required stuff that had more tender care as like DG UK showed or other promotions or really PWG showed more care towards uh, Dragon Gate in a certain way more so than Gabe Sapolsky ever did. That's what I was trying to think of was, is there a, a notable American promoter and PWG is kind of what I landed on that just like the... This is something that's just coming to you now, but just the culture clash between what Dragon Gate is, the fan services they provide, the customer service they provide, and who Gabe is. And as I've said on the show many times, I'm more pro-Gabe than most people. Even when he handles himself poorly, I typically understand where he's coming from and empathize with him to some extent. Not always, but most of the time, it's like, oh man, Gabe, I wish you wouldn't quote tweet people like that because you're right and people should see things from your perspective but you're making it so easy to root against you it's just this bizarre clash that it took me you know 50 episodes of this to realize just how odd of a pairing 
Gabe Sapolsky and Drangate are because they are really opposites in so many ways. Right, yeah. And the the other promote, promoter that I feel like if he got it, and I've never had a conversation with this promoter, but seeing how they've done weekly wrestling I think would be very interesting with Ben Drew Cordero and beyond. The, okay, so Drew's the other one that I thought of. Uh, I think if you gave Drew a month and we provided him with Drangate textbooks and said, here's what they do, he could probably figure it out because he is a guy that, uh, at his best, per- approaches his promotion with a lot of care. At his worst, he scribbles down cards on napkins and produces that. Uh, but yes, with the weekly TV, I could certainly see that, that being an option. Drew, I know, is someone that is not connected to Japanese wrestling at all. I once asked him about bringing Shigehiro Irie when he was on excursion in America, and I was given a uh, no thank you. Yeah, so... Yeah, and the last thing that Patrick asked was, would Dragon Gate eventually withdraw support regardless? I think probably, just because of how the company changed between 2014 and 2018. It just seemed like that, other than excursions, I feel like that that could have that would have probably petered off, especially with focus then going towards OWE. I feel like that the, the longest I could see Dragon Gate USA existing in that timeline would have been before OWE. I think the evidence that that supports that theory is that Dragon Gate UK concluded very shortly after Dragon Gate USA. Again, their last shows are July of 2014. I still think, though, had they not been wrestling in flea markets in Michigan or the Brooklyn Lyceum or wherever else they were booked, that there's a shot that at the very least the promotion continues for longer than it did. Because I, right. I, I just, I really think, you know... Uh, it was. It's just. It's, it's insulting to put you know Yamato or Shima or whoever in some of the buildings they were wrestling in. And I, you know, if I was a wrestler, I wouldn't go to Japan to wrestle in those same shitty buildings. So why should they come to America and wrestle in these shitty buildings? It was all these external factors that you know. Again, you know, Gabe wanted to run the Northeast. I get that. That rent is expensive in the Northeast. I get it. But still, has to be other options. Yeah. Yeah, it, it, it's something that I feel like it had its time and place, and the relationships that Dragon Gate has formed since then is probably what you will see out of their international expansion nowadays. And But, Case, that's it for the mailbag. We, we're going already two and a half hours. Do you have any other big takes you wanted to touch on before we get out of here? I have one what if I want to throw at you. Okay. And then we'll we'll kind of do the eulogy here, but... You know, we talked about what if Dragon Gate USA continues, and I think that's an interesting discussion, not only because of the talent that we talked about with the Millennials and Shimizu and Kotoka possibly entering the mix, the shift into the grapple fuck era of Evolve, where all of a sudden, you know, Ryotsu Shimizu versus Biff Busick would have been a possibility, and that match sounds excellent, but, you know, the rivalry that we never really saw was the, the Drangate side of things versus the New Japan Ring of Honor side of things, and I think that would have been interesting, but we talked about 2014 what would have happened if things had gone on. Let's back up a few years. Let's go to 2010. What do you, do you think the promotion is better, worse, or the same? Do you, do you see anything drastically changing if Davey Richards stays in the promotion? I think it would have helped the houses, I think. I think stylistically... It was always going to be a clash. Like, could you ever see Davey Richards doing long matches against your Geeky Horiguchis? Like, I, I think at a certain point, 
stylistically there would have been an issue. I think housewise would have been good. I think that that I think that Davy Richards, as we've talked about, his existence and promotions is always on a ticking clock, and I think that the ticking clock would have hit. And that I mean, we would have probably had Davy versus Tazawa, and that would have been incredible. Or Davy versus uh, Tomahawk, or T- Davy versus Ata, and those are very intriguing matches there. But you, you know, I, I I think it would have made more business sense there, and I think it would have done better promoting the shows locally. But I think after a certain point, like 2011, I think when you look at how quickly stuff got run through in 2011, I think that there would have been a logical endpoint there. I, I want to be able to see the alternate universe where Davey remains a member of the promotion because you have to remember him leaving is what opened the door for Moxley to become the leader of Kamikaze USA. I, right. I don't think that is when, when Moxley debuts in November of 2009, the third show. I don't think Gabe is looking at him as the leader of Kamikaze USA. Now, as we talked about during that episode, it was so obvious that Gabe was so excited to use this guy that he couldn't believe what he was getting with John Moxley when he got him. But, you know, I don't think the plan was for John Moxley and Gran Akuma and Yamato to be running roughshod through the promotion. I think he wanted Davey Richards in that John Moxley role. And I... I would have liked to have seen that. I would have liked to have seen Davey get sort of accustomed to the Dragon Gate style a little bit more. And I would have liked to have seen going forward whether or not Davey was playing that role of the Moxley guy where he was, you know, wrestling your Brody Lees and your outsiders and your American talent or if Davey would have integrated himself more so into the Japanese style. The other thing that I would have liked to have seen is Davey Richards versus Ronan and what that would have looked like. And we obviously never got that. Yeah, I think Davey Richards versus Chuck Taylor would have been very interesting. And <laughs> yeah, because then you have like the weird thing of would Moxley then, I feel like then he'd probably become the leader of the, of the DUF. I feel like that that would have been probably, because he was already a part of the promotion and he was with Kendrick for a while, but then they clearly positioned him into Kamikaze being the mouthpiece there. I think he would have been that for DUF. Well, yeah, because... Kendrick is there through Phoenix, but then he signs with TNA, and that's another domino that crumbles. Just it's you know, it's like the defenders tripped over themselves, and Moxley was able to walk into the end zone of Kamikaze USA with Davey leaving and then Kendrick leaving. That's what leads to him, you know, setting things up in in Canada when he did. It's God, it's it's so interesting just because everything this promotion was built on. I I, I guess what I can kind of wrap up with is if you want like definitive eras of Dragon Gate USA, what I sketched out was this, and it's mostly just year by year, you see these giant changes, but the, the golden era being those first four shows that directly end as a result of Davey leaving, you have this expansion era from Ultimate Gate 2010 and Phoenix through F- Freedom Fight 2010 at the end of the year, where you've got new markets, you've got a new roster. You see Gargano, Taylor, Ricochet, Adam Cole, Tozawa, those guys come in, and Moxley becomes the American focal point. You've got this whole period that I, I, I'm calling quality up, business down, which is United NYC, the first show of, of 2011, through Golden Gate 2012. So a full year there where... It, in ring, it's probably the best product that Dragon USA ever has. It's really built entirely around Blood Warriors. You see Gargano rise. You see Taylor and Swan do their thing. You've got the DUF, Ronan, Pac, AR Fox. Those are all established guys, but business tanks. And to me, and, and this is, I guess, where I want your input here, the final, 
vestige of Drangate USA existing as the original twinkle as, that, that it was in Gabe Sapolsky's eyes. The, the last show that we have that I think mirrors the first show in any way, shape, or form is Miami Weekend. And in any one of those Miami WrestleMania Weekend shows, after we get past Miami, it's a sharp downhill journey. And yes, you have, you know, uh, Revolt 2013, which I thought was a really fun show. Your Mania Weekend in Secaucus, where business is up and the matches are great. But the vibe is gone. In that vibe of this is Drangate USA, where the best talents in Drangate meet the best American talents, is gone after Miami. Did you feel that way? I felt like that, that I mean, because you lost Pac, you lost Yoshino, Shima stopped coming over as much, and it became very much like vestiges of what was before the only other point that i feel like would have been like spikes would have been sakakis i feel like that that did and i think that also lends credence to the idea of they ran less than it would still have the character to it you know i mean i think you, you'd extend it because you wouldn't be overrunning i think ultimately like because yeah like the first four shows when davy leaves that's like the first shoe to fall and then you know 2011 i think Although there's a lot of really good there, I would argue that 2011 burnt through about five years of the promotion in a way because it's how much they were running. 18 shows in one year, which is, I mean, you know, that's that's a lot for what this promotion was supposed to be. It was supposed to be four times a year. Right, exactly. So it, it, it's something, though, I, I feel like that your delineations are absolutely correct there. Uh, I guess, like, when I look at this promotion and when I look at, like, what happened afterwards— the, the big thing that gets to me is that it before PWG became the place, and I think a lot of people forgot about this, is the Gabe Sapolsky finishing school started a lot earlier than everyone started thought. Because you look at what happened there, you look at who, who left and where they left to, and people getting their first big shots there, and then seeing the real golden age of the first generation of the Dragon System in a lot of ways. And those were kind of like my big takeaways of revisiting this. I mean, you, we talked about peak BB Hulk, uh, the, the, the excesses and the detractments of Shima. And that was kind of like one of those things. And of course, like the, the uh, 14 month period that changed Akira Tozawa's life. And like, those were kind of like the big takeaways there. But I think like culturally, it would have been interesting if only because of where running is like what would have happened if Gabe Sapolsky got Adam Page I think that's something that I find really kind of fascinating in that light just like how he was so he got so quickly into Ring of Honor and he was just he was doing the Carolina Indies at that time I mean this he was doing a lot of the same shows that like Cedric Alexander uh Trevor Lee and Andrew Everett were doing and that those are like some of the things that I wonder about with Dragon Gate USA is like what would have happened if there were different promotions feeding into it in a way yeah I mean you could argue the Gabe finishing school starts in 2005 with CM Punk because you know up to that point you're either a bodybuilder guy you're a Harley race student or you were Gabe's top guy I mean that's how you got signed that's still up through last year that's how you got signed it's amazing and you know at the end of the day, when it comes to Gabe Sapolsky, he's going to be best known for Ring of Honor. He's going to be last remembered for Evolve. And there's this gap in the middle where Drang at USA is a dangerously experimental promotion where you see the, the highest of highs. You see Danielson versus Shingo, the Miami Six-Man, Mochizuki versus Tozawa. And the same promotion that you see John Moxley versus Homicide and Teddy Hart run in with his cat 
it's all encompassing in Dragon Gate USA. Every aspect of this promotion has to be discussed because every aspect of this promotion at one point or another is interesting. And wrestling today does not look the way it does if Dragon Gate USA does not exist. I think that's a good note to go on, go out on, case there's no one I would have rather engaged in this insane project other than you. So I'm glad that we had an opportunity to see this through. I wanted to, before we get out of here, I wanted to make sure to thank our guests that stopped by on the show, giving their live experiences. Of course, Joey Bay, Kelly Harris, and Alan Farrell stopping by and doing episodes with us, guys. Yeah, those were all tremendous guests. I'm glad, I'm glad we got those guys on. This was this was a blast. Uh, I'm very glad that we did this. I'm very glad to be done with this. And I'm very excited to have people check out what's coming next for us. Yeah, we're not ready to kind of like announce what's happening next. Uh, we have other things that we were kind of discussing and figuring out, but you'll hear more stuff. And there is, I'll say like, this is probably not the last time we'll be talking about Dragon Gate USA in one way or another. <sighs> You're right. <laughs> i i mean we won't be doing another 80 hours of audio but th there's other ways that we'll be revisiting this so if you're someone who's has loved th this kind of content we will have other ways that you'll be experiencing that in the future but do you have any th any other things where we get out of here mike i think that's it i think we can finally put a bow on drawing at usa Yes, and we can finish this out before we hit two hours and 45 minutes. I didn't think we were going to go this long here, but, you know, we had 50 episodes to kind of wrap up, give an aftermath for, and kind of, like, look ahead. But that's going to do it for us here. We'll be back with the weekly updates going forward. But for Case, I'm Mike. You can follow the podcast at Open OpenVoiceGate. Case is at underscore in your case, and I am at Fujiheya. But again, for Case, I'm Mike, and thanks for listening to Open the Voice Gate, and thanks to listening to the Rewind and Rewatch series. We'll be back with you soon. Take care. <laughs>